people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Something stalks the streets. Something possessed of animal cunning and fury. I understand you know something of the Whitechapel murders. I have seen the man known as Jack the Ripper. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson plunge into the Victorian underworld, seeking the answers to the most puzzling case in the annals of crime. Who is Jack the Ripper? A story that at last reveals the identity of history's most elusive murderer. A stunning cast brought together with an astonishing story. One of the great screen entertainments in the classic tradition. Murder by Decree. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Aaron Peterson. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. David McGregor. And once again, it's a delight to be here. We conclude our month of discussions around the 1970s interpretations of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's consulting detective, Sherlock Holmes. We wrap up with 1979's Murder by Decree. Directed by Bob Clark, the film is a mix of British and Canadian actors including Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes and James Mason as Dr. Watson. The fictional pair are put on the path of the very real Jack the Ripper, one of Britain's most famous serial killers. We are going to be spoiling the film as well as probably from hell and study and terror. So if you don't want those movies ruined, just go ahead, turn off the podcast, go watch those and come back after you have, we will still be here. So Aaron, when was the first time you saw Murder by Decree, and what did you think, sir? I don't remember. It was a, I was a kid. I don't know that. But I, I went to seek this one out because I remember seeing Black Christmas and going, that's a crazy movie, and wanted to find other films that Bob Clark had directed. <laughs> Didn't realize till many, many years later that he also did Christmas Story. Guys had an eclectic career. <laughs> Porky's too, right? He did Porky's. I don't know if he did Porky's too, but he did Porky's also. I... Saw Black Christmas, love Black Christmas, and then someone told me he did a Sherlock Holmes, which of course I'm a Sherlock Holmes buff, so I went nuts and went to seek this out. And this is probably my, of the four we've done, this is probably my favorite, to be perfectly honest. And David, how about yourself? I would have seen this most likely in the late 1980s, coming to it after kind of getting more interested in Sherlock Holmes uh, with the Jeremy Brett TV series uh, that came out in 1984. And I was looking for other, you know, interpretations of the character. And, uh, you know, I'd heard good things about this. And so, yeah, probably late 1980s, because I'm coming to it out of the Jeremy Brett series. In the Jeremy Brett series, he is uh, very heroic. He's brilliant. He's very capable, a little bit prickly. And so for me, as much as I like the, uh, the ambience and the, uh, the photography and the story... 
the homes of Christopher Plummer kind of fell flat because he's just not a very good detective. He's a better human being. I mean, he's crusading around London crying and feeling sorry for people, but he's just really, really bad at his job. It was kind of hit and miss for me. I liked everything about it, but the, the new humanized homes did not, you know, exactly set the world on fire as far as I was concerned. And how do you feel about it today? I, well, I rewatched it for this podcast, and because of the kind of cultural weight that the Rathbone Bruce films had, I mean, even in the reviews for this film, people were still, you know, they were comparing Christopher Plummer to Basil Rathbone. And, you know, Rathbone, his last film uh, as Sherlock Holmes was 1946, and James Mason's Watson is, is compared to Nigel Bruce. It's like, oh, well, how great he's not Nigel Bruce. He's very Nigel Bruce-like. He is a little bit doddering. You know, the famous scene in the movie with him and his pee, that's right out of Nigel Bruce. He is a kind of almost petulant child worried about his pee. Watson. Yes. Uh, Watson, uh, what are you doing? I'm trying to corner the last pee on my plate. Squashed my pee. Well, now you've got a corner. Yeah, but squashing your fellow's pee. Hmm. I'm just trying to help. I didn't want it squashed. I don't like it that way. Squashed. I like it whole. So that you can feel it pop when you bite mm. down on it. Yeah. I'm sorry. I wasn't thinking. Do I like the film? Yeah, I do. But I just... Personally, I'm not a huge fan of the idol-smashing versions of Sherlock Holmes. I like him to be competent. And he's just not in any of the films that we're considering, except, oddly enough, uh, The Adventure of uh, Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. Yeah, Holmes is in good form in that, but he's not the focus. He's barely in the movie. The other three films that we're considering, Private Life, uh, 7% Solution in this film, he's pretty pretty broken and not very effective at his ostensible job. I really wonder if that, again, we talked at the end of the last episode about the 70s and taking those idols and smashing them and how the 70s affected stuff. I mean, the way that this movie plays out, and I'm just going to jump right into it, this whole idea of the Freemasons being responsible for a cover-up of the murders of these people, it is so much a conspiracy paranoid thriller type of thing that I just really see this fitting in very well. Like to your point, maybe not in the Sherlock Holmes canon, but in 1979, this was perfect for 1979. And it, it matches up with Ripper Laura too. I mean, Ripper, there's a lot of Freemasonry and conspiracy theory there too. And they're just trying to tie it with Sherlock Holmes. And I like the humanistic portrayal that Plummer has here. It's very much the more uh, relatable Holmes, uh, not necessarily the Holmes of the books, but it's still a Sherlock Holmes and he makes it his own. And I really, I loved his approach. I really, really did. Even though it's not true, it's not true to the books. I, I will agree with David on that. It's not true to the character of Holmes. I don't agree that he's not good at his job. I just think he, because of the nature of the crime he's solving, he can't really do anything publicly without, I mean, it's Jack the Ripper. It's an unsolvable case. Everything has to be behind closed doors. Well, as is pointed out in the film, though, he's working for the bad guys. He's working for the government. 
Uh, they're trying to find this, you know, this missing woman. And he's also working for the, the radicals. And much like in 7% Solution, he's the hog being used to find truffles. He doesn't even realize what he's doing. He gets knocked out twice. And as he says at one point, I led the killers right to Mary Kelly. I led them right to their final victim. And yes, he did. I'd like my heroes to be at least somewhat heroic. I mean, is he more human? Absolutely. Because he starts the film and he is, you know, the kind of stereotypical, completely out of touch, upper class toff. He's attending, you know, the opera with, uh, with Watson in his own private booth. They both have white ties on. And when he's called upon by the merchants of Whitechapel, you know, we've got these women being slaughtered in the streets. It'd be nice if you could help us. He's not interested at all, at all. He's just, you know, he's obsessed with cleaning this pipe out. I didn't read it that way. The way that I'm reading it is it's, it's Holmes playing with them. Like he doesn't, he doesn't know if he wants to work for them specifically, but he's intrigued by the case. That's the way that I took it. Okay. Well, even Watson says you were really rude. <laughs> he was rude to those yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. Which is more the Sherlock Holmes I'm used to, you know, more of that Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm not paying attention, but I actually am paying attention kind of thing, or I'm just putting you off type of thing. Yeah, I, I'm not going to try to pile on to the movie. I find it kind of interesting that one of the main characters in here-ish is Donald Sutherland as Robert Lee's a psychic, and that Holmes goes along with this. I'm just like, it feels like Sherlock Holmes would never listen to somebody who purports to be a psychic. No, not to this degree, no. I found it interesting, though, that when you watch those scenes, there's a kind of a like a dreamy effect to show what Sutherland sees in his his psychic powers and then there's another one but that's more of a flashback and I think he actually gets like two flashbacks so he gets two flashbacks and a psychic vision but they're all kind of treated the same so they're treated almost like the truth Holmes is just like okay yeah I'll go along with this provide he gets some of his best clues from a psychic vision I think he was fascinated by it, is the way that it's basically laid out. You're right, Sherlock Holmes would never take the word of a psychic, but he would be intrigued by, he was always intrigued by oddities. So that would, he would listen, he would hear him out, he would listen, but I think it would be more to figure out if he's actually complicit in some some respect. Yeah, yeah, I would put him on the suspect list if he came to me and said, oh, I had this psychic vision, or somehow Sherlock would have to, kind of undermine him and be like, well, good, my good man, you actually saw this person here and then he implanted into your dreams, blah, blah, blah. You know, my good friend Sigmund Freud would tell you all about it. Again, with the 1970s, the 1970s were just rife. You know, we, we talked about the Freemasons and this really implicates the Freemasons as being complicit in the Jack the Ripper case. And that goes back to, well, it goes back a long ways, but it was really kind of formalized by uh, a couple of writers who wrote um, The Ripper File. Uh, they'd also worked on uh, a Jack the Ripper miniseries from 1973. And then there was also, I can't remember if it was those writers or another one who was part of the episode on In Search Of. In Search Of... Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, and it feels like there was one other one. I mean, the 1970s were really a golden time for conspiracy theories. Like, before we came to where we're at here in 2023, but, like, 
when I was a kid, I was just glued to the TV when In Search Of was on because almost everything was presented, not necessarily as just a mystery, but it was really very creepy the way that they would lay these things out. During the autumn of 1888, there occurred one of the most baffling crimes in the files of Scotland Yard. In the Whitechapel area of London's East End, women walked in fear of their lives. A wave of terror had been caused by an elusive murderer known as Jack the Ripper. And it was very much like watching, you know, Lights Out or some sort of spook show from the 1950s or listening to the radio and getting the bejesus scared out of you. In Search Of did that for me. I don't know if I went back and I watched In Search Of now, if I would be as freaked out, but man, oh man, when I was watching it when I was a kid, just the opening credits were enough to make my skin crawl. And then when you get something like, you know, the Jack the Ripper story being told in that format that they had with Leonard Nimoy narrating it, man, it was a really damn scary show. And this kind of fits right in there. And it's great that Clark, I mean, Clark at this point, he directed one kind of like a revenge type thriller type thing, but really so much of his work to this point was horror movies. We, we, uh, talked on, um, Mark Begley's wake up heavy. Um, he had me on there for an episode about, uh, deranged about death dream about, uh, well, actually he came on to the projection booth about black Christmas and there was one other one. Oh, children shouldn't play with dead things. And so having Clark be a director of this Jack the Ripper story. I mean, he's using a lot of tricks that he used from black Christmas. It's very this whole similar idea of this slasher. Yeah. This is right there. Like I was expecting the Ripper to, to ask how Billy's doing. It's like, um, Sherlock Holmes gets his own PG rated horror movie with really how it works out. Yeah. This was PG rated. A lot of people thought it should have been R rated. I'm kind of with them on that, honestly. But it was the era of uh, Chariots of the Gods and Pyramid Power. You know, all those had a vogue. One point I would make about inserting supernatural elements into a Sherlock Holmes story, it's, it's worth noting that was a real concern of Sherlock Holmes fans, uh, especially in the 1920s uh, when Arthur Conan Doyle was still writing stories. He personally was deeply, deeply invested in spiritualism, um, he wrote a book about fairies. Um, he was pretty credulous, but he drew the line at Sherlock Holmes. As, as he said in one of the stories, uh, you know, it's Holmes talking to Watson. Uh, this agency stands flat-footed on, you know, solid ground on the earth. No ghosts need apply. And so that was kind of a relief to, you know, fans of the rigidly logical Sherlock Holmes. But other people have certainly tried to invest, uh, you know, supernatural uh, themes into the stories. And there, there were in the original stories, you know, the potential was there in The Hound of the Baskervilles, in The Sussex Vampire. Uh, there were the, was the potential for supernatural elements, but there was always a perfectly logical, very down-to-earth, rational human reason uh, that had been dressed up to look supernatural. The so, Scooby-Doo solution, as it were. Yeah, well, Arthur Conan Doyle's father was a very talented artist who wound up in an asylum. He died in an asylum, and a lot of people felt Arthur Conan Doyle was headed down the same path. And his uh, his was a case in which, as you can see more recently with George Lucas and Star Wars, 
or J.K. Rowling and, and Harry Potter, the fans, to a certain extent, kind of took Sherlock Holmes away because, it, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle was maybe not 100% trustworthy with this thing that they really valued because of his, I mean, he opened up a bookstore, a spiritualism bookstore in Westminster, and he was spending hundreds of thousands of pounds. When he came to the United States, he came to do a tour of lectures on spiritualism. So it was a, a real concern uh, of fans of Sherlock Holmes that he was going to eventually fall prey to wanting to insert more spiritualistic themes into the Sherlock Holmes stories, but he never did. A lot of where you fall on a lot of these particular films are, where do you sit as a Sherlock Holmes, as a Holmesian, so to speak? If you're a purist, you don't want to deviate too far from the books, right? You don't want to get too far from the written word. But when something's been reincorporated over 200 times by 200 plus different writers at some point, you know, is it really the same work anymore? Or is it something, is it, is it really owned by more by the public than it is the original written word? Because that same character can be utilized in supernatural and horror and different elements. If someone appreciates the substance of the character. It's, it's a tricky thing. I think if you are an absolute purist, if you are, if you are very beholden to the original um, written text, a lot of these films are not going to work for you in, in general. But if you're open to expanding the world, trying new things, seeing where it fits, I think you're more open to a lot of these. And that's what a lot of these are. They're just taking a lot of license with the character itself. I am one of those writers. I've written three Sherlock Holmes plays and I adapted them into novels. And yeah, there's people that would say to me, why can't you do a, like a straight Sherlock Holmes story? You know, Dr. Watson, Sherlock Holmes, mystery, the end. And, uh, you know, the, one of the problems with that is mysteries don't translate in the same way that some genres do to film or stage, because it's not, especially if you're watching a play, the audience doesn't want to be sitting there trying to remember clues. You know, they want action. They want humor. They want romance. Yeah, they want mystery, but it can't be just an armchair detective um, sitting in his rooms. That's, you know, for most people, that's not going to be enough. So you add other elements. And in my case, I tried to remain very true to what I felt was the spirit of Sherlock Holmes, which was this is somebody who his basic instinct is to help people and to use his ability to use his skill. doesn't matter what strata of society you come from. He wants to help people. And he's a a good guy, and uh, his friendship with Watson is part of the appeal of uh, the stories. And so, yeah, you you riff on it, but at least for me anyway, I wanted to, to be you know, faithful in many ways to the general thrust of the stories. In the last movie, we talked about how both Freud and Holmes were contemporaries. And in this, they really explore this idea, and we'll talk about some other interpretations of Holmes meets the Jack the Ripper later on. But, you know, here again, we've got a contemporary of Sherlock Holmes. And I think, David, you also deal with contemporaries of Holmes. And that's what I've read, you know, in the rest of the uh, Nick Meyer stuff. It's uh, apart from, well, I guess even in the, the Canary Trainer, which is kind of uh, Holmes meets uh, the Phantom of the Opera. But again, there are still real characters, real people that he's injecting into this. And then there are, you know, I mentioned either last week or the week before this whole idea of uh, Holmes and George Bernard Shaw or Oscar Wilde or even Bram Stoker. All of them are in London at the same time kind of thing. And with this, you've got 
world's greatest detective versus one of the world's greatest quote-unquote serial killers one of the best unsolved cases that there's ever been and like i was saying you've got all of these things going on in the 70s where you've got different books being written about jack the ripper all this happening i guess because maybe it was 90 years or i don't know exactly what was in the air but really jack the ripper has been in movies probably not as many times as sherlock holmes but i would say he probably gives him a a good run for his money even the same year that this movie came out we had another nick meyer property it was uh jack the ripper versus hg wells in time after time one of my most favorite movies and yeah it was amazing to see how often uh jack the ripper showed up in movies i mean i i I would be curious if there's a list out there of how many times he's shown up or people that are very much like the jack the ripper i mean it's really kind of wild but i thought it was very smart that they say okay how would sherlock holmes solve this case and uh, again to your guys's earlier points it's interesting that they start off with three people already being murdered and sherlock holmes doesn't seem to give a toss about these people being murdered it isn't until he is approached by these merchants and kind of gets the taste for it and says oh maybe i will take this case on i saw i still saw that differently than you guys did though i saw that as he was intrigued by it but he wasn't requested on it and then when he got the direct request then he was more fascinated about it you know he didn't want to overstep and then you kind of like see the gradual increasing uh, humanistic qualities of him as he gets more and more involved in the case and it's it's probably the most relatable Sherlock Holmes I can actually think of like he's very very normal everyday Joe in this so I saw that a little differently than you guys did well there were people that uh, wrote to Arthur Conan Doyle you know, you're the creator of Sherlock Holmes, here's a mystery. And he was asked about, as far as I know, he never made any serious inquiries into Jack the Ripper, but there were other cases. Uh, There was a guy named Oscar Slater. There was another guy named George Adalji who were charged with crimes or suspected of crimes. And Conan Doyle uh, took up the cudgel on their behalf because people felt the creator of Sherlock Holmes is somebody who can help me. He was a very kind of a crusading guy in his own right. He had, he had a strong sense of what was right and wrong. And, you know, as you mentioned, George Bernard Shaw, you know, one of the famous quotes about Arthur Conan Doyle is, people would rather be wrong with Conan Doyle than right with Bernard Shaw because he was an everyman. He was beloved. He was the author of Sherlock Holmes. He was a sportsman. Um, he was a patriot. Um, he was, you know, very, very highly regarded um, by most of uh, British society. Mike, you were just talking about Jack the Ripper and all the films. And I, I remember seeing it everywhere as a kid. You know, just Jack the Ripper was everywhere. What, how, do you, how do you guys feel about the idea that this seems to be really the only serial killer in history that is grotesquely treated almost as a fictional property? I don't feel that the gravity of what occurred at that time is really taken into account in almost anything that's based on that Jack the Ripper appears in. Yeah. After a while, you start to think that Jack the Ripper is as equally fictional as Sherlock Holmes. Isn't that a little disturbing, but I mean, in some respects. Yeah. Even thinking about, I was just thinking about Jack the Ripper movies and I think, you know, even going back to, you know, the lodger, the, uh, Hitchcock film, oh, obviously great, great you're, movie. Yeah. you're familiar with that one with your, your Hitchcock podcast. 
he's basically stand in for Jack the Ripper. And that's how many years after these crimes actually take place? 1927. Something so, like that. Yep. Yeah. 40 years and 30 some years. So 88 yeah. was Ripper. So, and that's an early, that was still in the silent era. Well, he was never caught. He, he's the perfect mythic bogeyman. I mean, his, historically, yeah, there's some really dark characters out there. I mean, you know, Elizabeth Bathory, uh, the countess from uh, Hungary, I believe, was a nasty piece of work. But with the tabloids that they had at that time, the newspaper coverage that the killings got, and it just had a mythic quality to it almost from the outset. The alleys of Whitechapel, the slums of London, the fog, this you know, remorseless killer going after helpless women. Um, it kind of ticked off all the marks of this is uh, obviously horrific beyond horrific, but it's a great story. And it's gotten, you know, a lot of attention in part because of that. It, it's it's almost timeless. And I don't think you're going to see Jack the Ripper stories or, you know, themes kind of generated from that uh, disappearing anytime soon. It's just something that's always astounded me to and i'm guilty i've watched a, a ton of these movies i've i've watched so many of them i can't keep track it's it's only f- what five women that occurred over three and a half months right and it's it's captured the cinemascape for ever since ever since the the entire the entirety of cinema has had jack the ripper in it almost creating this this whole fictional aura and no other there's there's tons of unknown serial killer cases out there none on zodiac how many Zodiac killer movies that are fi- that seem fictional are, are out there? Probably none. There one's based on the case. There might be a couple out there that are like grade B or something kind, kind of movies, but nothing like Jack the Ripper. And I don't understand why we've done that with this particular case. Probably because, like David sa- said, it's just so fascinating in terms of the dynamics of it. But it's it's wild how we just basically treat it like it is a work of fiction. Well, just the idea too of the supernatural and there's movies there was what a james spader movie called jack's back where it's the idea of and i think scotty on star trek got possessed by the spirit of jack the ripper on one episode as well and you know there was uh when i wrote about william freakin's cruising i was talking about how more than anything it feels like the spirit of a killer gets inside and passes from one person to the other and i made uh comparisons between you know, the killer that's in uh, cruising that just kind of moves from person to person, you know, because you never see how hot, uh, you know, the height changes, the body shape changes, all this stuff. And I'm just like, well, what if it actually is just moving from person to person? Well, if it's the spirit of Jack the Ripper and even, you know, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Dust and Shadow, but there's talk in there about, oh, there were other famous killers in London. How about the London monster? And how about this? And I'm just like, is she going to go, the author, is she going to go into like, this happens every 40 years or something like that. Is this like a Victor tombs type of thing where, you know, the evil goes into hibernation and then comes out. But yeah, it was this whole idea of the, the killer that comes out of the fog and goes back and then disappears after these five horrific killings, whatever happened to this guy. Yeah. It just kind of lends itself to that supernatural flair. So having a psychic in here kind of makes sense, but you know, at the same time, it's, uh, it is interesting like you were saying, David, that we didn't have the supernatural in homes, which I kind of appreciate. And then I noticed that so many movies will try to move into that. I mean, 
or they'll give us a nice logical explanation. I mean, we talked way back uh, four weeks ago about young Sherlock Holmes, and that seems like there's a lot of supernatural stuff in it until you realize, oh, no, somebody's being drugged, and that's why they're seeing all of these hallucinations. Well, there's a big market for that particular slice of any kind of narrative. I have students that, I don't know, I don't know if it's still on, they were big fans of the show Ghost Hunters. I'll always ask them, have you ever wondered why the show wasn't called Ghost Finders? You don't have to find anything to make it a good show and for it to be an entertaining narrative. And I think part of the appeal of Jack the Ripper as well is, I want to say it's like, what, every 20 years, 25 years, there's a big splash. I know who it is. Here's the killer and here's the proof. And everybody gets all excited. Oh my God, it's this, it's that. In this case, it's Prince Eddie. And then it's like that gets you know gradually debunked by people actually looking at factual data. The Ripper keeps on getting you know brought up because uh, it's money. You can monetize it, <laughs> and people uh, you know love that story. Clark shows us pretty early on parts of the face of the killer, so he doesn't keep him in shadow and POV shots and all this for too long. I mean, pretty early on in the movie. You know, I talked about how when we see Nicole Williamson's eye in uh, the, the 7% solution that we f- see that first. And he's got that, you know, the, the uh, super wide pupil that he's all strung out. In this movie, pretty early on, we get a shot of the Ripper's eyes. And we'll talk about from Hal later on, but it's very similar where it's almost pure black. And then just this tiny pinprick of a, a pupil. So we're kind of getting parts of the face and we just don't know exactly whose face it is. And then once it's revealed, it's like, I don't know who these guys are. Like, it it takes until this very protracted explanation at the end of this where, you know, I mean, I think it's 15 minutes of kind of like Simon Oakland in Psycho. Where they realized they had to uh, Sherlock Holmes this? Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, they had John Gilgood for one day. Damn it. And we are going to film John Gilgood. All freaking day. See, David, that's where he, he Sherlock Holmes the hell out of that, though. Like, he just saved it all until the very, very end. But by the same token, it's like, okay, the British government is sanctioning the murder of women and children, and I'm going to give you guys a jolly good talking to, and then I am going to keep it a secret because we don't want to make any waves. It's like, that's weak. That's weak. Yeah, I think they had Gilgood for a day. They They ran with it. If anything, I think this movie really would have benefited from having Mycroft in here and having this whole thing of like, hey, brother man, you really need to keep the lid on this. And yeah, it goes all the way up to the annals of power and all this, but you really need to, you know, my job's in jeopardy. The whole British government's in jeopardy. You really need to, to put the lid on this. I'm surprised they didn't go that route. And by by his even his own admission, he's not he's not saying Eddie was involved in in the murders per se. It was some devoted <laughs> mates of his, and that they're just basically covering it up. I mean, I could see that happen in pretty much every government. So I don't think it's it's too far fetched, especially you know these days. It's Jack the Ripper, and then it's like, oh, it's two guys. That's not just one guy. It's like a kind of tag team effort because that is the conspiracy driven by the Freemasons that are trying to protect the monarchy from scandal and the potential that there's a Catholic child that has been fathered by Prince Eddie, who, to clarify, Prince Edward, 
the Duke of Clarence was the grandson of uh, Queen Victoria. And so his father, who became Edward VII, he was in direct line for the throne. And so it would have been a huge deal if Eddie had uh, fathered a child out of wedlock uh, with uh, uh, a prostitute. And then, yeah, the whole Catholic thing, too. I guess that's because of the Anglican Church that they're all members of. And so just even the religion or, I mean, I'm so whatever about religion. I mean, okay, the kid was baptized Catholic once, just re-baptized. But I guess it doesn't work that way. Oh, no, you can't do that. Once you're, okay. Once, yeah, you can't do that. You, you are so going to hell. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh just boy. by even okay. thinking it. Really? Listen. No listen, do-overs. My... No do <laughs> My grandfather got my grandmother pregnant, and then they had to get married. This is in Scotland. And he was Protestant, and she was Catholic, and they had to get married so that they could have my mom, and her family stopped speaking to her. You can look at things in retrospect and say, that's insane. Uh, but when people get self-righteous, uh, they get, uh, you know, rationality goes right out the window. Well, and I forget about things like the Troubles over in Ireland and that being Catholic and Protestant were super big deals for a long damn time. And so many people lost their lives. Well, they had, you know, Elizabeth the first and Mary queen of Scots. And the whole issue of, was England going to be a Catholic or a Protestant country was a point of contention for a long, long time. I totally can understand that. <laughs> no, you can't, but you're just saying <laughs> <laughs> it's not right. No matter what the movie itself I think it's very wonderfully shot. I think a lot of this works. And we are talking before, as far as the relationships go, I think that the relationship between Holmes and Watson is really the reason why I come back to this movie time and again, just to see, well, I guess it's Holmes and Watson, but moreover, it's Plummer and Mason. And just to watch how these guys act around each other and even that funny scene and that's pea by the way ladies and gentlemen if you haven't seen this movie there's no golden showers in this it is a p on that's the director's cut i love that i love the p scene it's a very it's a very charming scene and yeah i agree they work they work really well together it's part of the you know the humanized homes that you see homes laughing it up with watson i mean sometimes kind of inappropriately you know, near the end when they discover the eviscerated Mary Kelly, you know, Holmes and Watson have a bit of a smile, you know, here, have my gun, old man, you might need it. And it's like, wait, man, do you guys know like, what's happened like five feet behind you? It's in, in the frame. Uh, so I found that a little, little disturbing. <laughs> I've got some friends where I could see us being that ridiculous in, in those moments. It's just like a moment of lightness. It's almost like the back of the world disappears and the horror and they're just trying to find motivation to continue on. You know, maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe just because I like, I like those two. <laughs> Everybody in this cast is fantastic. I was very surprised. I always forget that uh, David Hemmings is in this. And his role is interesting because, he one, he's basically there to be a red herring. And two, <laughs> he's there to be part of the mystery as well. And he and those shopkeepers allegedly like they are all in cahoots and they are all these revolutionaries that want to do away with the monarchy holmes is kind of a dupe for these guys as well it takes a long darn time before he figures out that hemmings is working with those guys but he's great to see on screen and every time he shows up i'm just like oh okay cool this is pretty good because he basically is 
he's a superfluous character quite often. He's basically just another version of Lestrade, but more of a plain clothesman, I suppose. But Lestrade in here, I really liked him in this movie. And Lestrade is, uh, I mean, I don't think we've seen, other than that one of the deleted scenes from The Private Lives of, uh, of Sherlock Holmes, I don't think we've seen Lestrade this entire month until this episode. No. But, I mean, weirdly enough, the guy that plays Lestrade, Frank Finley, he plays Lestrade in A Study in Terror as well, which is the 1965 version of Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper. Well, and the guy that plays Sir, is it Sir Charles? I think he's also in that movie. Anthony, Anthony Quayle? Quayle? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He and his facial hair are treasures. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, they're worth the price of admission. I should mention, I don't know if you guys know, but John Gilgood was, he did play Sherlock Holmes on radio for, in BBC in, the, I want to say, 1954. He was Holmes and Sir Ralph Richardson was his Watson. When I was listening to the stories that the adventures of Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother were based on, Gilgood, it was radio versions of at least two of those. So that was kind of nice to hear. So those are available either for free or for pretty darn cheap over on Audible. So yeah, definitely check it out. It's like we talked about. If you're a British actor, you have to have played Sherlock Holmes or Watson at some point. I will mention one thing that I, I realized when I was watching this one again, that it jars me a little bit. Like every film that we've talked about, Sherlock Holmes is running around in his deerstalker and his Inverness cape, which he would never do in London. Never. That's for when you're out in the countryside. And that was one of the things I liked best about the Jeremy Brett series is when he's in London, he dresses like a gentleman. And it's only he puts on, you know, the deer stalker when he goes to Dartmoor for the Hound of the Baskervilles. But every Holmes that we've seen, he's charging about Holmes in this kind of, as actually Robert Stevens says in uh, The Private Life, this improbable costume that Watson has foisted upon him. So Hollywood wants to, they love that look. That's the Sherlock Holmes look. That's the silhouette. That's, it's almost like, you know, the Hitchcock silhouette. You just, you know it when you see it. Well, even before we see Christopher Plummer, we see the pipe and it's the pipe that leads us up to Christopher Plummer's face. So again, he's kind of this symbol, you know, we talked about how the pipe in a smarter brother, like sometimes you didn't even see the actor. You just saw the pipe. It's like, you could have gotten anybody to even just hold that pipe a little bit off screen. And there you have Sherlock Holmes looking over things. I always find that's to me one of the most interesting things about any incarnation of Holmes is how do they first present him when you first see him? Like in the uh, Basil Rathbone, Hound of the Baskervilles, you just see his torso pacing back and forth. You see Watson sitting down and you know it's Sherlock Holmes, but all you see is him pacing back and forth and then they cut to uh, Rathbone in profile. And he had that, as somebody once described it, two profiles pasted together look. I mean, he, he had a great silhouette to him. And I always find that interesting. How, how are we going to first show this iconic hero uh, for his first appearance in this particular film? I wanted to go back to something you were talking about earlier, Aaron, as far as the fictionality of Jack the Ripper. This is going to sound like a weird analogy, but Jack the Ripper kind of reminds me of Santa Claus. Sometimes you get those like Santa Claus is coming to town where it's like, okay, here's how he got the hat. Here's how he got the laugh. Here's why he's named Chris Kringle. And Jack the Ripper is very similar in that, okay, we know that this was the order of victims. We know these and like every, cause by now, by the time we're recording this, I've 
listened to Dustin Shadow. I've looked at uh, the last Sherlock Holmes story, I believe it's called. Watched Study in Terror. Watched this one several times. And then also watched From Hell. So right now it's like, okay, it's just the same pieces being moved around slightly. Like I said, it's interesting that he starts after the third murder already takes place in this one. So we don't have to have all five of the murders being shown. You, you know, you've got like, all right, well, Mary Kelly is the always the final victim and she's done worse than anybody else is. And it's just all of these different trappings that you have. And then you get the whole thing of the note, the, the Jews are the ones who will not be blatant, whatever that whole thing. And or Jewess, J U W E S. That's a real clue. I mean, that's a real Jack the Ripper clue. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. So then it's just like, okay, we've got all these pieces on our chessboard here. How do we rearrange them in order to weave Sherlock Holmes in there or Johnny Depp as a detective? Like, how do we now explain these things in this particular way? And sometimes that arrow of clues can lead to. Prince Edward. Sometimes it goes over here to anonymous doctor over here. You know, my favorite one is, uh, kind of goes back to private life of Sherlock Holmes. The whole idea that it's actually the Loch Ness monster is the one that is Jack the Ripper. Is this the way it happened? Was Jack the Ripper, in fact, a 60 foot sea serpent from Scotland? Did I take this job for a quick buck? We may never know the answer to these questions. Where do these clues lead to all the way up to, to Loch Ness possibly. So, but these, it's, it's very fascinating to see how they wind Sherlock Holmes in amongst these clues and then also make him a very humanistic character. You know, that's kind of like a little bit of the bone of contention with this episode is just Holmes as a humanist, Holmes as more of the traditional story. How does that work out? Because you know, I was listening to one of the audio commentaries and somebody said, oh, Holmes cries through like a third of this movie. And I'm like, it seems a little much, but he definitely does shed some tears, especially in the uh, uh, Genevieve Bujold scene where she just, again, great cast. She just kind of comes in and steals the show for probably about five to ten minutes. Wasn't she captivating? I thought she was absolutely captivating. Yeah, she was great. And she fit in with the whole, uh, we're going to cast. Canadians and uh, English people. That's it. That's our cast. You got me one of those. So she fit in really well. And I think I think I believe I read someplace she cut her own hair for for this film. And she's yeah. Well, she's just fabulous. She's just off the off the charts fabulous. Then it made me go and look up her original scenes in Voyager and watch those, and then hear Kate Melgrew just talking so much trash about how Bujold pronounced things. I'm like. Wow, you're kind of a see you next Tuesday, lady. I'm not a big fan of you anymore, Kate Mulgrew. So, <laughs> took a turn. Bujol would have made a good Janeway, is all I'm saying, because she can definitely act. And this was another great time for Genevieve Bujol. I grew up with Genevieve Bujol in movies, and to see her back in this, and and again, freaking Donald Sutherland. You know, small part, but very powerful, and. Great, you know, to your point, David, another great Canadian actor and the seventies, man, like to me, Gould and Sutherland just own the seventies and these two kind of odd looking characters that 
just were in all of these different films. Though with this one, every time I saw Donald Sutherland in this Victorian garb, I was just like, I mean, it looks like he's about to go on a great train robbery because he was so great in that movie. And I think that was just the year prior. It's like he was starting to corner the, I can be a weirdo Victorian person. Susan Clark was great too. I, I really thought the acting across the board was, was just phenomenal. Or at least it was very strong. Very strong. Anybody who's been married to Alex Karras is okay in my book. Obscure Detroit Lions anecdote there. Big time lies. Well, for me, he'll he'll always be Mongo more at first and always in my heart. Mongo only pawn in game of life. But a great football player too. Yeah, so with that Jewess clue, I think that's really what puts this into the whole idea of the Masons and this. So it's interesting because it's it's Masons covering up the crime, but then you still have Prince Edward at the the heart of it. And it's really from hell is very similar to that. But I have heard the Prince Edward thing before, but I didn't necessarily associate with it, uh, the Masons kind of protecting him. So this was, uh, you know, and these two quote unquote misguided guys that are murdering all of the people that knew about the wedding and looking for this child. It makes for an interesting story. Has it been discredited? Yeah. Do I care? No, not really. I mean, the Masons to me, and hopefully we'll hear from Mason later on in the show, the Masons are always kind of a little bit mythological as well because they're so secretive. So you can attribute anything to Masons, I suppose. Yeah, I don't think they ever had anything to do with this, but for a long time they were attributed just because of that one clue. Just that, That's the big conspiracy theory because of that one clue. And I'm like, couldn't that have been Jack the Ripper throwing that clue in there just to throw you off his trail? I'm just saying. Well, they're, they're, they're reminiscent to me, and no offense to all the Freemasons out there, but it, it, it's, it's like the Ku Klux Klan and the Grand Wizard and Secret Handshakes. It's, it's stuff most people abandon once they turn 12. It, it's just silliness. It's just silliness, but for a lot of people, you know, the trappings of it, it's very weird and mysterious and exciting and exotic. There's oftentimes, you know, kind of uh, sexual nuances associated with it, and it makes good fiction. But in real life, having a secret ring and a secret handshake and, you know, I'm the prime minister, I mean, come on. That's just, it's, it's sad. Yeah, it's sad. These are supposed to be grown men. And although, you know, I was in Big Boy a couple of weeks ago and the guy in front of me in line to pay was filling me in on the international banking conspiracy led by the Rothschilds, just out of the blue. I didn't even know this guy. And he's, he wanted to impart the, the secret uh, new world order that was taking place beneath my very nose. So I think his brother actually drives cab in Vegas because I got the same speech. Well, for the record, God bless the Rothschilds. Yes. This plays really big in the Rothschild uh, sector. So I actually have all my Facebook ads targeted just to that. There's a special checkbox, but you have to know the secret to get in. They're going to be pointing at their laptops. They're talking about us. They're talking. It's us. They're talking about us. Did you feel like Sherlock Holmes was secretly a Freemason or just knew the secrets of their handshake and their ring? He just knew. He's he's not going to join any little boys club. He's an adult. Anyway, that's my take. I don't know. Mike, what do you think? Well, it's my take too, but my take was that he just knew it, uh, not that he was a Mason. And to your point, David, I think he already laughs at his brother for 
being in the Diogenes Club and all those silly rules that they have. So yeah. I, I can see him not wanting to join any sort of society, especially to be beholden to somebody else. That doesn't feel like, other than Watson and Mrs. Hudson, it feels like he wants nothing to do with any person in the world. People love that stuff, whether it's the Illuminati or what is it called? The Skull and Bones Club at Yale? The Stonecutters? I, I guess it's important to a certain kind of mentality, which apparently I do not possess. Uh, me either. Well, and you even get into things that are more open, but also these clubs like Elks and these guys where they usually do good things for the neighborhood, those kind of things. But it's more than anything. It's the excuse to hang around with guys your age and play drink. cards and drink. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 all, it's all about drinking. All comes back to that. Well, like the great Groucho Mark said, I would never want to belong to a club that would have someone like me as a member. I honestly thought I was exaggerating, but then when I was listening to the Bob Clark uh, commentary, I was like, oh, the final scene is starting. I need to watch what time it is. It literally takes 15 minutes. This whole thing of, what is it, four people in one room and shooting that. And I have to say, bravura, Bob Clark does his best to make this interesting, but I just feel like it goes on for too long. Listening to these books and watching these movies, Sherlock Holmes can come into a room and say, oh, how was your time in Dorchester? Uh, how, what was your wife doing? Blah, blah, blah. You know, just like give all of these things about somebody. And then inevitably they or Dr. Watson will have to say, how did you know that? And then it gives the whole thing, well, you know, the, the dander on his coat and the, the dirt at the bottom of his, uh, his hem, and he'll just give this whole thing and explain away everything. That's an interesting thing, and I like that. But the explanations like this, where he's just going through point by point, I did like, too, that Clark used alternate takes most of the time. It wasn't the same things that we saw, so we got a slightly different perspective. But still, just for him to sum up this movie and j'accuse over to the prime minister and you know, really get into the masonry stuff, it just, it was a little bit long in the tooth for me, especially the second time I watched this this week. I was like, oh my God, can I fast forward through this? You sure could. Yeah. It's my house. I can do what I want. You can do whatever you want. I thought same as you. It felt protracted and... You know, it's it's not, as you said, it's not uh, simply a case of Sherlock Holmes explaining his deductive process. He basically spends 15 minutes chastising and you know, shaking his finger. You naughty boys, you shouldn't be doing this, but I'm not going to tell anybody. And, you know, the power of it is considerably diminished. I mean, it's supposed to be, again, part of the humanized Holmes. He's emotional. He's getting, you know, weepy-eyed thinking about what these horrible, powerful men are doing. But in the end, he doesn't actually, all he wants to do is extract a promise from them that the bastard child, uh, the little girl, will not be harmed. And if he has that guarantee, he'll, he'll keep mum about the whole sordid affair. And that's what that scene resolves itself down to. I, I do think it's the most Sherlock Holmes that a Sherlock Holmes has ever Holmesed. It's very much a... Uh... Hey, I, I'm going to tell you everything I learned in this entire movie right here. Welcome to your exposition. And I do think it goes on a little bit too long. I do like the scene overall. I, I feel like it's the culmination of, of the growing 
humanistic qualities we've seen in Holmes throughout this film. Uh, you've got Sherlock Holmes at the end of his career, kind of, in many respects. Uh, so he he absolutely formed um, some kind of an emotional bond with her at the sanitarium. And now, you know, and he lost Mary, and now it's come to this. So it's this just outward explosion of emotion. I think Christopher Plummer delivers it masterfully, in my opinion. I, I feel like he he captivates the screen in this scene, even though it does go on too long. It is a little bit too ex- exposition heavy, but I still enjoy it, and I really enjoy his performance. Like, I thought his performance was captivating, personally. One thing that kind of uh, struck me is the whole notion of Genevieve Bujold's character. He gets all worked up. He has a bit of a cry. He attacks a doctor. And then he's subsequently told, oh, well, you know, she committed suicide next day. And there's no question from him. I mean, it's like, you know, Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, he just died in his cell. Yeah, that, those things happen. Um, he's, he's not going to you know, suggest at all that maybe... No, he makes a reference to it in that scene. I don't remember what the wording was, but he does make a reference to, I'm supposed to take your word or, or I'm supposed to take you at... I don't remember how he said it. I really don't. But I, I, I'm fairly certain he does. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It happens. Yeah, I thought he just kind of swallowed that that particular story whole. Or maybe, you know, pragmatically, it's like, well, that's not, at this point in the film, a direction that we want to go in and open up that can of worms. So I mean, she was right there teetering on suicide, so it wouldn't have probably surprised him either. Yeah, that's true. All right, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break, and we'll return with a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Brent Morris, the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Freemasonry. And after that, we'll hear from Mary Kelly herself, Susan Clark, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash projection booth that's pretty simple I think you can do that it's a great show and Mike he provides hours of great entertainment so now it's time to give back my little droogies settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco and then you'll be ready for a little of the old in out, in out, real horror show. Bye bye. Mr. Morris, when was the first time you even heard about Freemasonry? My grandfather was a Freemason, and I knew that he wore a Masonic ring. That was about all I knew about Freemasonry at that time. Sometime when I was in high school, I'm 16, 17 years old, I'm talking. I- was a member of the local magic club, this chapter of the Society of American Magicians. And I was talking to one of the older members, and I had seen an ad in the back of Popular Science magazine. And at that time, they used to have hundreds of these little bitty ads. One of the ads that caught my attention is all the secrets of the 33 degrees of Freemasonry for $1.99. You know, I, I said to my friend, what do you know about the Masons? Well, I was in Demolay, which is a boys group that's sponsored by the Masons. He said, but I'm not a Mason myself. And we started speculating. How come they're selling all the degrees at once 
why didn't they sell them for 10 cents a piece or whatever? Then when I was in college, same type of conversation happened with one of my fraternity brothers. His uncle was a Mason. And when you're in a dormitory fraternity house setting, talk about anything. And then the conversation just bounces around wildly from one topic to another. And he and I had passing interest in Freemasonry. I was just curious, what are the secrets of the Mason? And his uncle was a Mason. We were both at Southern Methodist University, so I went to the SMU library, and I checked out the books that they happened to have on, on Freemasonry, and I just started reading them. We continued the discussion, and in January of our senior year, we both came back from Christmas break, and he says, Brent, you know what I'm going to do? I just turned 21. I want to join my uncle's Masonic Punch. We've been talking about this for a semester or two or whatever. And I thought for half a second, and I said, huh, if you will wait till March, I will turn 21, and I'll join with you. He said, deal. So we both put in our petitions on my birthday, March 28. We were both elected members, and our initiation was, I think, June 20, something like that. And I became a Mason and was made a Master Mason on Monday. Friday, I packed a van and drove to Durham, North Carolina to start grad school at Duke University. Duke happened to have a very large collection of books on Freemasonry. I had just joined, and so I had dozens of questions. So I would stack a, check out a, a stack of books, take it home and read it over the weekend, then check out another stack of books. And I just found that it appealed to me. It clicked. I enjoyed the people I met. I in, enjoyed the symbolism of the ritual. And Boy Scouts did not appeal to me. I remember that I'd been in the Cub Scouts, and they, they wanted us to move up to Boy Scouts, and I went on a camping trip with them. And I thought to myself, I don't like this camping. It's grumpy, and it's cold, and... And then they were going to teach us how to do Morse code. And I had a hard time doing that. And I said, if this is the type of activities they do, play with Morse code and sleep on the hard ground in the cold weather, this ain't for me. So if the Boy Scouts didn't click, Freemasons did. Go figure. So what kind of activities do the Freemasons do? What appealed to you about them? I think what I liked the most were the people that I met. When I was in grad school, I was caught up in a ghetto of mathematicians with a few theoretical physicists hanging around, and those were the only people I saw. When I was at a Masonic Lodge meeting, I saw there, there, there was an optometrist who, who was my optometrist, and so he was a member of the Lodge. The lieutenant sheriff in town was a member. The fire chief was a member. A small shop owner that I became buddies with was a member. So I met all different kinds of people. In fact, I post something, posted something on my Facebook page, and I said, consider this, a theoretical physicist, a medic, a research mathematician, and a medieval scholar in Latin walk into a book. That's it. Lodge meeting was over. We wanted to finish our conversation and share a pint before we went home. I find that kind of cool, that I can show up at a meeting, and there is a research mathematician by training. There's a nuclear physicist who happened to be working on his master's degree in theology, talk about a change. There was a scholar of medieval Latin, and we were not talking about any of our academic specialties. I don't even remember what the topic was, but let's go across the street and get a pint before we go home. So I enjoyed the people we meet. I enjoy 
the intellectual background. I suspect that if I went to a Rotary meeting or a Lions Club meeting, and I'm a member of neither, so I'm just speculating here. But I doubt if people would be talking about what the Rotarians, I know they wouldn't be talking about what the Rotarians were doing 300 years ago. They would not be talking about what the Lions Club did in the community 300 years ago or how they could have an influence on the officials of the government and so on. But anyway, that's, I guess the thing that appealed to me was the depth of the history and the broad range of people that I met. How did the Masons even start? Now, that's a good question. It's, it's a little fuzzy, and I can tell you what we know about. The concept of a guild originated in France about 1200. Norman Conquest is 1060. So sometime after 1200, the invading Normans brought over the concept of a guild. The workers, it's a trade union, an apprenticeship program, and you have membership. And there is this quid pro quo, the, the crown or the owners, whatever the business is, promise a fair wage, and in return, the guild guarantees equality, a certain quality. So the earliest document we have on the Masons Guild is about 1390. So the Masons are abandoning. In fact, it's interesting. If you look at the laws, the king made it illegal for Masons to assemble together in a group because they were negotiating wage. And the king didn't like that, didn't like that at all. So you have this idea of guild developing. And then somewhere around 1600, in Scotland appears, they had a practical problem to solve. And here's the problem. If you're going to have a trade union and you want it to be a closed shop, so you can't just walk up and start growing master's wages unless you have been through the apprenticeship and so on. If you want, if you want to maintain that and you want to give your members the ability to travel, so they finish the bridge in Aberdeen and they hear they're starting a new church in Glasgow, we're going, to, we're going to travel and get some work. And that was one thing that made Masons different from other guilds, is you could be a baker, a miller, a brewer, and spend your entire life in one village and never leave. If you were a Freemason, when you finished the extension to the town hall, when you repaired the bridge, when your job was finished, there might not be Mason work in town for 10 or 20 years. So you had to move. Now, when you go to the Oxford English Dictionary, and it looks at the definition of Freemason. It says there are two origins, or two possible origins. One is these were the skilled stone carvers that worked in something called freestone. And freestone didn't have a grain to it, so you could easily curve it in any shape or direction. The other possible explanation is that the Freemasons were free to travel, unlike the other occupations. So about 1600, be because... They were free to, and they wanted to be able to prove their membership. They invented the Mason word. Now, the first written evidence we have of the Mason word is 1637. And a guy writes in his diary, and I know this is going to be hard to believe, but the Scots nobles were having conflict with the English king. Scots and the English getting into a dispute, they didn't think the Irish would be involved also. So in this first reference, a guy's trying to play both sides of the fence, trying to be loyal to the king, trying to make nice with the Scots nobles. One of the Scots nobles accuses him of having the Mason word. That, he just said, okay, thank you. 
I'm all through. And the reason for that is the king at this time was James I of England, who is responsible for the King James Bible. He was also a fanatic against witches. All of the witch trials that we had in New England, all of the hundreds of witches burned at the stake in England and Scotland were due to King James's obsession. And the Masons' word would secretly identify other Masons. And according to written legend, it let you secretly summon a Mason to do your bidding. There are two ways you could do that. I could know a secret side. Hey, Mike, you know, what you're doing this afternoon? And you say, oh, would you like me to come help you with something? <laughs> you got it. The other explanation is that I was in league with the devil when I was sending little demons over to whisper in your ear. And that's what James... Anyway, the whole reason I go into that detail, that is the first mention of the Mason word, 1637. And there are two things that are significant about it. The first one that's significant is it's scary to be accused of having the Mason word. The second thing, the guy that writes this down doesn't have to explain what the Mason word is. He just, he just says, Sir Mike was accused of having the Mason word, and he dropped out of activity in any further negotiations. That's a very subtle thing, but just think about it. He didn't have to tell anybody what he was talking about. They already knew. And what this reminds me of, there's, there's a, another reference to the Mason word. There are about 15 or 20 references prior to 1730 and about the first century. 1637, the first recorded known instance, to about 1730, there are only about a dozen or 20 references. One of them is a sermon given by Reverend William Guthrie at his church in Scotland, and his sermons are all recorded in a big book, and they're in the University of Edinburgh, a library. And he says to the congregation, Christ has a way of knowing his followers, just like the Masons know who each other are. I don't understand how the Masons do it, and I don't know how Christ does it either, but they can identify each other secretly. And that's all he said. He didn't have to elaborate. His, the way I look at it, back in the 1930s, the Flash Gordon movie series, and he probably have covered this, but perhaps in some of your discussions, had what, the Ming, Ming the Merciless, I think was the bad guy? In the 1930s, if you were giving a sermon anywhere, and you said, a really bad guy like Mean the Mer Merciless, and the audience would all nod because they knew who Mean the Merciless was. Today, you'd say a bad guy like Darth Vader, and everyone would nod. They know who Darth Vader is. He's a bad guy. In the same way, William Guthrie could talk about the secret way that Masons identified each other in just this casual throwaway sentence, and everyone in the congregation is nodding you. Okay, so the first written reference is 1637. I'll give him 25 years. Just to have a nice round number, let's pick 1600. So about 1600, the Masons developed the first secret, and it, it's, it's a secret word. They started admitting more honorary members. Okay, now we're going to fast forward to 1666, where we'll travel south from Scotland to England, and that's when you have the Great Fire of One. Now, the head of the the organization that ran the Masons in London was the London Mason Company. It still exists today. It was one of the guilds that elects the Lord Mayor and ran the city of London. And they used to have a royal monopoly on building with stone. No, in fact, some 20 or 30 years ago, someone found a stone that had been intended for the Tower of London that had fallen into the Thames. They dug it out of the Tower 
Tim's and they cleaned it off and they were going to bring it in and make a presentation to the Tower of London. And the London Company of Masons stepped up and said, no, no stone for building purpose can enter the city without our approval because we have to check to make sure it's square and it's going to fit. So the English had a grand chance for a ceremony. So they bring the stone up to the city walls. The Masons Company comes out. The Masons Company is unrelated to the Freemasons. It's independent from the social fraternity. And so they checked the stone to make sure it was suitable, and they allowed it, allowed it to go in. So what happens in 1666, London is burned to the ground. They, I think Christopher Wren designed 70 or 80 churches and the St. Paul's. And the king, I don't know how polite he was when he said this, but he said to the royal company, to the company of Masons, you guys have done a great job for the last couple hundred years building the stone. We have an emergence. Any man that's strong enough to pick up a stone in one hand and carry a trowel in the other is a Mason. Thank you very much. You don't have the royal monopoly. Now, what this meant is that the London Company of Masons no longer had a source of income. There were no longer apprentice fees. So what do they do? I mean, you always hear the advice, follow the money. The London Company of Masons had a private ceremony called the Exception. And you could be accepted as a Mason for a pretty high fee. And if you looked at the list of men who, are, who were made accepted Masons prior to the Great Fire of London, there were middle-class businessmen, that the petty bourgeoisie, that didn't exist 100 years prior to that. They had now reached the point of economic strength, economic health, I guess, that they had idle rich. So for some reason, and truly do not know what happened at the ceremony of the exception, except you would occasionally see a minute Brent Morris paid 20 pounds, 50 pounds, whatever it is, bought dinner for everybody, and went through the exception. All of a sudden, the number of men being accepted into the London Company of Masons, skyrockets, shoots up. The fees shoot up. Okay, it makes sense. The king has taken away the apprenticeship fees. There is no longer an apprenticeship. You are put immediately to work. London Company of Masons needs more income, so they start making honorary members, and they're made accepted Masons. Why this was a cool thing to do, I'm not sure. It was. So the number of Masons increases, the, the number of non-operative, we call them today speculative Masons, because they speculate on the symbol on symbolism as opposed to building the stone, the number increases. Now we get up to 1770. And this is part of what appealed to me. This is not just a group where Mike and Brent got together with a beer with their buddy Steve and they decided to make a club of movie lovers. Well, if we do that, we better throw Monica in too. So it's, it's going to be a co-ed club of movie lovers. And we said, yeah, let's do it. It doesn't seem to have happened the Masons. It was a more of a gradual evolution. And at some point, the honorary Masons outnumbered the real Masons. The activity of the Lodge moved from actually building with stone to becoming more of a social organization. This is at the same time that the coffee houses are being created in London. This is the time when the clubs are being created in London. You know, London is famous for, for their various social clubs of, of, of various levels of exclusivity. So in 1717, the Masons in London are having a problem. The problem is they have no one to guide them. They're falling apart in their activities, and they say, 
if we had a central authority, if we had someone in charge that would send out a monthly newsletter to remind us to keep on our toes, who would come around and check up on us, we could get our act together. So they invented the idea of what's called a Grand Lodge. That is a regional head of the Masons. And it was originally the Grand Lodge of Westminster in London, and then it expanded to include England, and then they picked up Wales, and, and here they are today. By 1717, they formed the first Grand Lodge. And one of the things they weren't doing, one of the complaints that was made is they were not holding the lodges were not holding the annual assembly and feast. So I like to say they were party animals and wanted to get together and drink and toast and eat. And so now the Grand Lodge is going to do it. Now, an interesting side note to this, Grand Lodge of Scotland is not formed until 1737. He said to himself, wait a minute, if you guys are older than the English Masons, and if many of the important things like the Mason word came from Scotland, how come it took you so long to form a Grand Lodge? And they will respond in a flash because we weren't falling apart like the English. We had our act together. Our lodges functioned perfectly well without oversight. We would get together occasionally and have a dinner. You hosted the dinner last year. We'll do it this time. And it wasn't until 1737 that they finally, and pressure from England, formed their own Grand Lodge. And they were formed after Massachusetts. I think the order was England, Ireland, Massachusetts, and then Scotland. And at some point shortly after being formed, they talked a member of the nobility to join. And so the Duke became Grand Master. And once that happened, this is a cool group. That means that here I am, a little shop owner, and I can join the group, the Duke of Montague, his head up. He might even come to my meeting one, one, one night. Wouldn't that be cool that I get to dinner with the Duke? So it was the first game in town. It was the only game in town, and it spread like wildfire. So the Masons didn't actually build the Temple of Solomon and were massacred afterwards. That's the story that I tend to hear. That is the guild legend. Every guild had some legend for, for how they were formed, for the, who their patron saints were. Everyone wanted to trace themselves back just a little bit further. We go back to King Solomon's Temple. Oh, we go back to... Abraham, huh, we go back to Adam, we go back to, you can't go back, you can't push back much further than that. There's also the stories I hear that, oh, it was the Masons that built the pyramids. The Masons were building King Solomon's temple, and surely they built anything that came after it. And in fact, there, there was one branch of the Masons that said, we go back to the Tower of Babel, which is older than Solomon's temple. Everyone's looking for something old and honorable that they can claim that makes them more special than everyone else. And so when you guys have your meetings, do you just talk about how to control all the members of government, correct? Given the state of the government today, we take a hands-off approach. Actually, one of the things the Masons did, very smart, very, very smart, back in maybe, seven, I'm sure it was 1717, right after they formed, they said there are two things that cannot be discussed at a lodge meeting. You cannot discuss politics. You cannot discuss religion. Full stop. What else are you going to fight about? your favorite soccer team. This whole thing though of opening it up to people that just aren't Masons themselves, that's how it's been for a few hundred years now. That's actually probably how you manage to be, because I don't imagine you're not cutting stone. You're a, a mathematician. In my lodge, we do have a real stone mason. 
he does general contract work, but he also does fine marble cutting. So if you want to map the state of Michigan, he's the guy that you would hire to take the marble, cut it into shape, use mortar and put it in place on the floor of the wall, and then put the mosaic around. So we happen to have a real stonemason in my lodge. And we also live, my lodge in particular, is very close to Fort Meade, Maryland. So we have a unusually large number of employees of the National Security Agency in one place. And that's just because we are geographically the nearest lodge, and anyone that works at NSA who's a major employer in Maryland and wants to join a lodge probably lives near our lodge. For some reason, and there had been honorary members going back centuries, and you can imagine it makes sense that you make, in Scotland, you make the local laird an honorary member, and may, maybe he will sponsor a round of drinks at the Christmas banquet. You you invite him to preside at the annual banquet or whatever. doesn't hurt to have friends like that. So the idea of honorary masons, honorary members, goes back some time, and it picked up steam as it moved forward after 1600. There, there are enough honorary members in London that they took over in 1770. And one of the questions that's always raised, just how gradual was this process? Did each year you get a few more honorary members until they finally squeezed out the older members? Or did the old guild system just collapse and someone say, hey, here's a pretty cool organization. Let's take it over and run it ourselves. And to be honest, we don't know. I kind of like the gradual evolution theory. But there's not enough evidence that there wasn't a radical shift, a radical takeover. It could have been. I don't know. And I, some people prefer the radical takeover idea, that the old guild organization was just crumbling and maybe it even gone out of business. All that was left was the name. They said, you know, the Masons used to meet here on this tavern. Well, why couldn't we do it? Oh, cool. You want to be the worshipful master or the right worshipful deputy grandmaster? Oh, well, who knows? You mentioned the idea of degrees earlier. Is that kind of like going back to your Cub Scout days? Is that kind of like Tenderfoot, you know, like all the different stations? Like with Boy Scouts, of course, you got the Eagle Scouts and all these kind of things. Is that a 33rd degree was the person that's gone through all of this? Here's what you got. At, at its most basic level, you had two levels of membership. You were an apprentice, and then you were a fellow of the craft. And so after you finish your apprenticeship, you, and I, I think it was a seven-year apprenticeship, it was the typical apprenticeship, and you worked for the master, and there was this quid pro quo. He would teach you the skills necessary to be an independent worker, and you would provide him with faithful service during the training period. And then you would be a, a mason, a fellow of the craft. Now, during this period when you had two levels of membership, they had masters, but the master was the guy that had, he was like the general contract. He was the guy that had the contract. And so for the school that we're building, you might get the contract and you would be the master mason. And so you would be in charge and I would report to you. Next contract, when we're going to build a small chapel, I might win the contract. And then I would be the master mason and you would report to me. The other way you could be a master is you could be elected master of the lodge. It was a presiding position. So it was a position of responsibility, and people took turns holding it. 
Now, something odd happens in 1725, and we don't know what it is. Because all of a sudden, there is a new level of membership called Master Mason. So now there are three levels of membership. An apprentice and fellow of the craft. And now there's a new third one called Master Mason. And we were pretty sure that it started in Scotland. We think we know what date it was picked up by English Masons and made it back to England. But we don't know why it started. We don't know... We suspect that it was started by the gentleman Masons because it involves a guild legend, but it's a guild legend that had never been heard of before, just like a lightning bolt that suddenly appears. It's a pretty entertaining story, morals in it, and lots of symbolism. You can see where it would be much more interesting than the very simple welcome to the lodge type of ceremonies that existed for an apprentice and a fellow craft. So that starts in 1725. Then eight years later in 1733, we have the first evidence of a fourth degree of membership. And this is called the Scots Master. And it had nothing to do with Scotland. Then they started coming fast and furious. And, and so you had dozens of them, hundreds of them appearing. As near as we can tell, France really went gaga over these extra degrees. So they started producing them by the handfuls, then, then by the armloads, and by the end of the 18th century, you have one of the branches that's familiar with in the United States is the Scottish Rite with 33 degrees. But then you had the Royal Archmasons, the Markmaster Masons, the Knights Templar, the Royal Order of Scotland, the Mistress goes on and on, and they were all connected and glued together in different ways, all with overlapping degrees. I would borrow or be or plagiarize your degree, you would borrow and plagiarize my degree. And I think what happened is that the most organizationally successful groups were the ones that prevailed. For whatever reason, you were a better organizer than I was. So your system of 13 levels of membership worked better than my system of 15 levels of membership. Not because 13 or 15 were important, but because you were a better administrator than I am. And so you were charismatic, you were organized. You belong to enough organizations in your life that you've seen well-run organizations and poorly run organizations. Really doesn't have anything to do with the mission of the organization. So what has happened in the United States, and this is one of the things that tripped up the scriptwriters on murder by decree, they assumed that the 33rd degree was the pinnacle. No, the 33rd degree is the pinnacle of a branch of masonry called the Scottish Rite. There is another branch of masonry that in the United States we call the York. They don't call it the York Rite at all in England. It's kind of, huh? What's the York? But there are all kinds of other organizations you can join. And that's one of, I think, the lasting strengths of Freemasonry is that Every 25 years, maybe, a new organization is created. Sometimes you'll have a whole flurry of activity, and they'll create a dozen organizations within 10 years or something. And these often turn out to be young guys that join the organization, and they find out that all the leadership positions are taken in the others, other branches. Okay, smart guy said, we'll start our own group. And they start their own group, and then... They fill up the leadership positions, and someone comes up and 
And I think a good way to think about it is think about a university community. Everybody is a student and is going to get a bachelor's degree. Okay, and it's assuming they finish college. Some people want to play football and they want to play serious football so they come out of school's NCAA team. Other guys want to play football, but not at that level of competition. So they join the intramural game where the dorms play against each other, the fraternities play against each other. You have the same thing with music organizations, the marching band, the jazz band. You, you have, there's a chemistry club, there's, there, there's singing groups. So you can join a lot of these organizations. And these organizations are all built upon the foundation of the college. The college is the base level. And actually, in, while it is the bottom, it is the most powerful piece. Phi Beta Kappa may be an important honor. Pe- people may gasp when you say, I- I'm a Phi Beta Kappa graduate. Oh, wow. But being a Phi Beta Kappa doesn't give you any kind of privileges over the budget. It doesn't give you any kind of authority to assign professors to teach topics. It just happens to be an honor that acknowledges at one point you achieved a certain level of academic excellence. And so all of the other branches of masonry, the Scottish Rite, the York Rite, and the Shrine are probably the three biggest ones. Then the Eastern Star, that, that's the Coed for men and their wives. Those are probably the four biggest organizations. But there are dozens of groups. If you're interested in Masonic history, particularly interested, uh, there's, there are two large national groups. One, one is called the Philolathes Society. That means lovers of truth. It's a Greek word. And the other one is just called the Masonic Society. And they publish a quarterly journals with Masonic history articles. Now, if you like Masonic history, boy, you will be a member of one of these groups or both of them. If Masonic history isn't quite your thing, maybe you'd be happy, happier being a Shriner. And they're the ones that march in the parades, they wear the fezes, and they have this breathtaking network of, I think it's 24 children's hospitals around the United States. They were created at the time of the polio ep- epidemic back in the early 1920s, and so they were originally orthopedic hospitals. And now something interesting has happened. A medicine is moving away from inpatient care, and it's outpatient care. It's only the most serious of operations that they'll have you stay overnight in, in the hospital. They want to get you out of there as fast as they can. And so previously back in the 1920s, when, when a child with, with polio might spend weeks or months in the hospital getting treatment, they just do it on, on an outpatient basis. Another interesting thing that happened, and I, this factoid sticks in my mind, back in, I want to say the 40s or 50s, in the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis-St. Paul, there was exactly one pediatric hospital, and that was the Shriners Hospital for Children. So they, they not they specialized in orthopedic medicine for the children, but they also provided other childhood services. Today, there are eight pediatric hospitals in the area. And the Shriners went from having a monopoly to being one. They, they may lose to a competitor because they're 10 miles further away. So there, there's an evolution of what they offer. Yeah, there are all kinds of branches of masonry. And the big kahuna is the president of the university, the grand master of the Grand Lodge. Everybody else, no, no, no matter how important you think the president of Phi Beta Kappa is, no matter how important you think the 33rd degree is, when you get down to it, it's the Grand Master, the president of the university, that pulls the strings. 
So what was it about the 1970s? And it might've gone back even earlier. I know there was the book, The Ripper Files, and then that kind of lit a fire to suddenly recast the Masons as protecting perhaps one of their fellow members who was Jack the Ripper. How does all of this stuff happen? Why are you guys the bad guys all of a sudden? It was not just us. There, you take any societal institution and you can find that they have ups and downs. And Stephen Knight, and a curious thing is in England, all the bad press to the Masons is about helping each other socially or the, the police are all Masons. They give special treatment to their brothers. In the United States, it's all that the Masons or the Antichrist, that they are secretly pagan religious worshipers and no particular concern about government corruption. It's all religious corruption. A, I guess a social historian familiar with English history and American history would be able to explain why one black beast is anti-religion and the other black beast is helping insiders. But for whatever reason, Stephen Knight writes this book in 1976, I believe that was the date, uh, in England, and he comes up with this fairly convoluted story that has massive holes, but it appealed to the public. And in particular, the Masons, the nice guys that have been around all the time, but you know, they always get together and have drinks afterwards. And it always seems, have you ever noticed that the Masons nearly always hire another Mason to work for them? There's something going on. I'm not in the Masons, and they've got an edge that I don't have. Just like the, and I think it gets back to the social structure in England, where you've got landed gentry, where you have nobility, where you have the bourgeoisie that is above the working class, and you have this very strong class separation in England. So there's some jealousy. So Knight's book came out, when you read the details, there are huge holes in the story. Wikipedia has a pretty good summary. And it became popular. And it went through 20 editions, I think. And then 10, 12 years later, I think it was 1988, Stephen Knight came out with his book, The Brotherhood, where he wanted to demonstrate that the Masons, especially Masons and the police, were doing favors to their friends and buddies and wash my back and I'll wash your back type of thing. Now, while that's going on in England, in the United States, and now I want to say this was about 1990, a guy in the Southern Baptist Convention, James Larry Hawley, I believe was his name. He was a physician down in Beaumont, Texas. He got it in his mind that the reason that the Southern Baptists were losing members was because we allowed those satanic devil-worshipping Freemasons to be members of the church and to have positions of authority. It had nothing to do that every other denomination in the United States was losing membership. The Baptists were special, and the Baptists were different, and the I mean, you would expect the Presbyterians or the Catholics to go down because they're not Baptists, but the Baptists. And so what he does is he writes this book on Freemasonry and, and Baptists and then the Southern Baptist Church. And then he is a, I think they're called messengers. He's a voting member of the annual convention of the Southern Baptist Church, and he puts a motion on the floor that the Southern Baptists are willing to disfellowship all Freemasons. And it, 
is like slapping the side of the head with a two before. No one expected this to come. He just decided to do it. And then all of a sudden, there is this wild scramble as churches or some churches are saying, wait a minute, are the Masons really a problem? Let's check into this. Another churches are saying, wait a minute, three-fourths of our deacons and the associate pastor and the principal of the superintendent of the Sunday school are all Masons. They're not a problem. What kind of idiot is this? So there's this, for some reason, on both sides of the Atlantic, there are these attacks on Freemasonry for entirely different reasons. And then Dan Brown comes out with his book, The Da Vinci Code, and that is now 2005, maybe? So you know, you, you've got 76, you have the Jack the Ripper things, the, the Masons are out committing these horrible murders to, to cover up the one, one of their own who was the Prince of Wales or, or was heir apparent to the throne. And then you have the attack, Knight continues his attack, that the Masons are now helping each other in an unethical way. And then you shift across the Atlantic, and now all of a sudden the Masons are being attacked. They're the Antichrist. And then 10 years after that, 15 years after that, Dan Brown comes out with the Da Vinci Code. 80 million copies, I think it's sold. 90 million copies. No one expected that. They're like two or three sentences about the Masons in there. They say something nice about the Masons. But all of a sudden, the Masons are good guys. And then you have National Treasure. National Treasure is this wildly successful movie, and there's a secret message on the back of the Declaration of Independence. And it's just a, it's a carnival ride. It's don't pay too much attention to the plot. And now the Masons are the good guys. Go figure. Are the Catholics the good guys, or are they child molesters? These various groups have ups and downs. How did you come to write The Complete Idiot's Guide to Freemasonry? Chris Hodap wrote The Dummies. And so you have Freemasons were dummies, and then you have The Complete Idiot's Guide. And he came to, that's why I was working for the Supreme Council, the Scottish Rite headquarters in Washington. And he showed up, wanted to do some research. I met him for the first time. I helped him, and I said, what a nice project. Good luck. I'm looking forward to reading it. And then four or five months later, I get a call from a buddy of mine, and he says, I was just asked to write The Complete Idiot's Guide to Freemasonry. I don't have time. I didn't like the agent they sent. I told him you might be interested. I said, oh, yeah, let me talk to him. And so this is around the time the Da Vinci Code is coming out. Uh, the, I mean, everyone that told many people, I'll eat crumbs off of Dan Brown's table any day. My book which was not as successful as Chris's book. The dummies were not as successful as... The idiots were not as successful as the dummies. I sold over 50,000 copies of my book. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. I published a math book by the Mathematical Association of America, and I think I sold 6,000 copies, which for a math book is two thumbs up. 50,000, though, in the real world is pretty impressive. So they gave me the assignment, and I started teaching... At the college level back in 76. So I've, I've done a fair amount of teaching. It's, it's nearly all been as an adjunct faculty member. But I said to myself, okay, what if I'm teaching a course in history, American sociology, something like this, and the term paper is to describe an American organization in detail, how it originated, how it functions, what impact it has on the community, what it does. Okay. Yeah, I could see that as being an interesting topic. 
And I said, now let's do it for Freemasonry. So I said, how would we put that information together? Now, just as an as FYI, the dummies have a fairly specific format that you have to follow. The book must have at least five and no more than nine chapters. Each chapter must have at least three parts and no more than five parts. You must have at least every other page a sidebar that's going to say a neat fact, a little more detail on the background. And as you read these books, they have these sidebars all through it. And these sidebars, it's formulaic. You, know, you, you can't go more than two pages without putting in a sidebar. You have to have at least three kinds of sidebars. One is just a factual, historical. The Shriners were reformed in 1927 or 24, whatever it is. I, so they're just a factual sidebar. And then another one we're going to expand and explain that a 33rd degree Mason has no more authority than a Master Mason in, in a local lodge. And, and so you have these little sidebars. And it's a pretty successful formula. Now, you need to have someone that has a pretty broad background topic if they're going to write this beginner's introduction, because having that broad topic means you know what has to be included, and more important than that, what can be excluded. So how many different co-ed organizations do we want to talk about in the book? There's the Eastern Star, there's the Order of the Ambulance, there's the White Shrine of Jerusalem. The list goes on and on. And so I knew enough to list the two biggest ones. And then I said, in addition to these, here are some others that exist in there. They're evil. They're, they're chock-a-block. I had enough knowledge that I knew what to put in and what to keep out. And so I put together the book, and it was reasonably successful. Penguin is the parent company of Alpha, which publishes the Complete Idiot's Guides. They are not as aggressive about translating and putting their editions in, 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 in other countries. Wiley, who handles the dummies, is very aggressive about translating and getting other editions out around. So I'm very envious of Chris that he had a more aggressive publisher. That's how I became the, the, the editor of the Complete Idiot's Guide. Yeah. I also had the advantage at that point, I was the editor of the Scottish Rite Journal, which was the largest circulation Masonic magazine in the world. And one other thing, and I'm amused by this to know if you look at the cover of the Complete Idiot's Guide to Freemasonry by S. Brent Morris, PhD, I have given up my major writing and editorial duties simply because I've got some health issues that make really fatigue. With the meds I'm taking and the health issues, I take lots of naps. The nice thing about naps is the side effects of naps are well understood, and they're pretty benign. So <laughs> I don't worry about that, but I just didn't want to have the pressure hanging over me of grinding something out. I haven't stopped attending meetings. I am working on some projects that particularly interest me. I may remember that I told you earlier that I was Charles Warren's successor in Quattro Coronati Lodge. Quattro Coronati was the first lodge of historians, or the first lodge of, we, we call ourselves the authentic school as opposed to the romantic school. And publish something in, by Quattro Coronati, they want a footnote. You can't just say, yeah, the English like orange marmalade better than strawberry jam. No, you've got to say, 
production records turn into the ministry of whatever show so many tons versus so it has to be factual. So one of the things I find that I enjoy is typesetting because it's a mathematical way of laying out these objects that look appealing, that fit into a regular grid, and they are simultaneously mathematically organized, and they're also visually appealing. And so if you, what is the rule? I've seen the chart, but if you have, I think it's 20 words is the optimal width of the paragraph. Your eye can follow along 20 words, get to it, drop down, and start the next line, and you don't lose the line. If you have an enormously long line with 80 words, you get so far down to the end of the line, and you go back, you try to go to the next line, and you're lost. Your eye can't follow. So there's an example of, of a rule that makes reading easier. As a mathematician, I can apply that mathematical rule, and yet it produces something that is aesthetically pleasing. I help the editors of both the Scottish Rite Research Society in the United States and Quattro Coronati Lodge in, in England. I help them lay out and design books. And then one of the things that I enjoy doing is indexing. And indexing is deeply mathematical to me. And one of the things we want to do at Quattro Coronati Lodge is since 1886, the foundation, founding of the Lodge, we have produced an annual transaction. So papers that were delivered to the Lodge or, or submitted for, for research, and they were indexed every year. We want to merge the indexes together, but that becomes very interesting. Are you going to be indexed as white, comma, Mike? Okay, that's cool. We could also index you as white, comma, Michael. We could index you as white, comma, M, period. We could index you as white, comma, Captain Michael, comma, USA, or, or USM, or whatever it is. The thing that is most important about building an index, pick a style and stick to it. You, you can, and in fact, it, it's good advice for a book. You can argue about whether you need an Oxford comma. At the end of the day, make a decision and stick to it. And so what I've been doing is my goal is to take the 130 existing indexes, merge them together in, in such a way that you can look up peanut butter, and you're really interested in crunchy peanut butter. So you look under peanut butter, might be a category of nut butters. And so when you go to peanut butter, it'll say seed nut butters, and it'll list almond butter, peanut butter, cashew butter. And then under peanut butter, it'll have smooth and creamy and, and like that. So that's a long-term project that I'm looking at. Mr. Morris, thank you so much for your time today. This was so great talking with you. Absolutely. I'd like to start with how you decided to become an actress. I'm always curious about how people decide to become that profession that they stick with for so long. I grew up in the 1950s in a very provincial, then provincial city, Toronto, Ontario. And there weren't a lot of options for women. You could be a librarian or a nurse or a teacher, but nothing creative. And I just always wanted to do it. My mother said I was 
irritatingly dedicated and that I, from the age of five, I wanted to do this, to have fun, to play dress up because those are pre-TV days and we had to entertain ourselves. And then when I was 12, I joined an organization called the Toronto Children Players, run by Raymond Massey's sister, who's named Dorothy Goulding. And we gathered in a church basement every Saturday for two and a half hours and did improvisation and pantomime. And then once a year, we presented at a big auditorium in the city. And I liked the people. They were fun. It was so constrained and so uptight in the 50s that this was liberating. This is what it's all about. This is what I want to do. My mother was very supportive. My father, not so much. But my mother found that there was an apprentice scholarship in Niagara-on-the-Lake, where the Shaw Festival was close to. And so I went for six weeks and got nothing but rent and food and swept the floor and ironed the clothes and did that for six weeks. And again, it was an eye-opener. Louis Zorick, I don't know if you remember that name, he did a lot of movies too, but he played Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And about halfway into the show, it did burn down, literally burn down. So the next year, Nate Goodwin and his wife invited me and somebody else to go back again. And this time they were in Flint, Michigan. How oh, that has changed. Oh, boy, yeah. But we had a wonderful time, and they were musicals. And then I was in my middle teens, and I would say to these actors from New York, if you had the chance to study in London, England, or in New York, where would you go? Oh, London, for sure. Because it was just a better education all around. And so I auditioned and got into a school and went off around 17 years of age to London and studied the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and then got into the rep system. And the education was good, but what was great was being in that city of 1,500, 2,000 years where we could go for 50 cents to see any opera, any ballet, any play, whether it was the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National hadn't been formed yet. So it was a wonderful place to grow up. I bet. And so wow. I stayed with it. Did I read that you worked with Don Amici when you were young? I did. He was charming. That was at the that was at the Flint musical tent. And I think Flint was at that point very wealthy, white suburb. Its employees and executives came from General Motors. So they could afford to support a 1,500-seat tent. So yes, Don Amici, lots of wonderful, interesting people. Yeah. So what happens after you graduate from RADA? I'm a Canadian, so I could get into the repertory system there. So I found an agent, and I did a weekly rep for seven months. That's every show, every other week, except for the Christmas special. And then I did the Northeast Shakespeare Festival, which was amazing. It was a 2,500-seat theater. And the Beatles, nobody ever heard of these four kids, were jumping around on the stage on an off night. 
when we, I know it wasn't, it was a Saturday night and we were in rehearsal. Can't make this up. And we said, the older people said, oh, rubbish. But there was something fun about it for us younger members of the company. And then I was lucky enough to get a, a job in the West End with Donald Pleasance and Charles Gray for Beatles. And that ran for six months in the West End. And then I had to go back and forth. My father was dying of cancer, and Donald Pleasance was the producer. And he said, I will give you a compassionate leave of absence for three weeks if you give me a fortnight, two weeks, to find a replacement. And when you come back, you have a job. Can you imagine anybody saying that in this country? No, no. So I did. He actually gave me a month. I stayed for a month, basically said goodbye to my father, went back, came back into the company, and we continued for another few months. And then it was bouncing back and forth and then starting to work in television, which was considered, they looked on their noses, you're doing television? That was in the 60s. And then I came back to Canada and got a lot of work at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In those days, they were doing classics. So I did Shakespeare and all kinds of different plays during which I was discovered, quote-unquote, by Eleanor Kilgallen at Universal Studios. And so that was a back and forth. And then I ended up in Hollywood. Never unpacked a bag, always had my passport ready because I didn't think it was going to last. And here we are 60 years later, <laughs> and I'm still here and loving Los Angeles, especially now that I'm not in the business. I, it's a wonderful city. It's really quite extraordinary. Once you got to Hollywood, what were some of the early roles like for you? I think Madigan was one of the first with Henry Fonda, who was just a prince. What a lovely man. Wonderful man. And I later, in the late 70s and 10 years later, I did a, another movie with him in Montreal, City on Fire, which was interesting. But he was always charming, and he and his then-wife took me out for dinner in New York, and I was really tongue-tied for a while. Don Siegel did both Madigan and Cougan's Bluff, yeah, which is a, another location in New York, which was great fun. Great fun in the late 60s. It was all under all this energy coming in from the young people and lots of changes, and it was good. Don Siegel didn't like actors. He only liked movie stars because actors ask too many questions. Henry Fonda was both a theater actor and a film actor, big star, and he just would give me a wink and say, come and let's have a coffee. And he would answer questions. And Lynn Eastwood really understood what movies were about. And he kept saying to Siegel, I don't really need to say this. Why don't she say it? Oh, I don't need you to. And I thought, why is he giving away all this dialogue? Because the camera was on him and he was just listening. So he was very interesting. It was a great shoot. I remember going to the cloisters and standing on top of the TWA building for the final shot coming up. It was a great time to be in New York and working. And we stayed in a fabulous luxury hotel. And Clint knew everybody from the series, Rawhide. I met Ray Charles. It was really fun. And it, it was a good film. I think it was a good film. Don Stroud and I were both under contract. And... 
as was the young woman, whose name I don't remember, because I think she left the business shortly after. But the three of us would like stare at each other and say, oh my God, this food is fantastic. Wow. (laughs) Three young kids just having a ball with all this time and energy and money and all of that coming in. So it was fun. It was fun. You were in one that is just a bizarre film, Skullduggery. What were your memories of working on that? My memories of all these movies that I'm looking at in your list are the place is another character. So the place for Skullduggery was Jamaica. Beautiful island, beautiful. They had just become independent from Britain. We walked into a civil war. There was the blue stripes and the red stripes, and we went through three directors. It was very difficult, so I'm not sure nobody really understood it. I was under contract still, and I did, I think, four different voiceover narrations to try and explain what was going on, which even I didn't understand, and I was there. Burt Reynolds was a pretty good director. He had to take over because we were spending, I don't know how many thousands a day, waiting for the studio to send the next director. We had lovely young people from Indonesia who played the tropies, the monkeys, in these absurd suits and this heat. And they were lovely, but there was a lot of financial shenanigans. Behind the scenes, it was a mess. But on camera, Edward Fox and I stayed friends for a long time. Hans Gudegast became a big soap star. I never really saw it much of him later. And it was fun. The island itself is so beautiful. I remember going to location and seeing a sign at six o'clock in the morning as we drove up into the Blue Mountains. You are now entering Martha Bray. Who says <laughs> entering Martha Bray? Who was Martha Bray? But it was a famous Jamaican who held the line against the British. And it was a very political time in the United States. The Vietnam War was going on. It was tense. It was tense because of people stealing money from the show. The directors were replaced for, I have no idea why. So the solid part of it was the story, which this one-time producer really loved, It was a French novel called Les Animaux Peniteurs, and it was an interesting thing, but the script didn't work. Sometimes changing from a novel or a short story or whatever to a script to a film just dies. Somehow it's lost in the translation of one modality to the next, so it didn't work. But it it was nice memories. My memories, happy memories, were of Jamaica. And Bob Marley. Hello. There was Bob Marley singing in a little club in the town that we were all billeted in. So that was fun. You get Ray Charles on one movie and Bob Marley on the next? Yes. A little bit in between, but yes. Please tell me that Forbin the Colossus Project was not the mess that Skullduggery was. No, it wasn't. It was very organized. It was very boring to do because they had tape doing the machines, the Colossus. The actors had to wait until all of this technology, very early times. And so all of this technology had to fit hand and glove. And of course it didn't. 
So we were lucky to get, I don't know, three, four minutes a day. But most of us were under contract or had a deal with the studio. So they didn't seem to mind that it was costing a fortune. But again, I was not the right generation to appreciate what was coming with internet and computers. One funny aside was that about a year later or two, I was in Seattle at the Seattle Rep playing Lady Macbeth in a wonderful production. And we had to do, to get the money from the government, state and federal, you had to do three shows for kids, teenagers, high school. And of course, it had to be at nine o'clock in the morning. And I had no idea that they would, I didn't quite understand. They were restless and whispering and all that when we were doing the show. But there would be like 18 young people standing at the stage door. And I thought, that's weird. They didn't want to talk about Macbeth. They wanted to talk about Colossus the Foreman Project. And they wanted to know how we did it and what the computers and were we in the Lawrence Livermore lab? Yes, we were. And did we have to take our clothes off? Yes, we did. And what was this machine like? And it was great. So it was interesting. I don't think we got it really, uh, why it was so popular. And it's now, I guess, become a cult film. I don't know. Was there ever any talk of a sequel to that? Because I know there were three books and you just made the first one. I don't remember. I don't think it made enough money, Mike, for it to really flow into a series. And maybe it was ahead of its time, very much ahead of its time. They said, oh, I didn't make any money. So then we went to Airport 75, total opposite direction. That was universal in those days. Well, speaking of Universal, do you mind if I ask you about your Columbo experience? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Oh, good. Because I had heard that Peter Falk was being a little difficult at that time. He was very difficult, but he was never difficult with actors. He was difficult with what is called, you know what the Black Tower was? Peter was great. And he said, you really want to say this shit? I said, sure, show. What do you want to say? He said, let's just figure out what we're going to do. Uh, what do we have? And then he'd look up at Norman Lloyd, who was directing, wonderful, became a lifelong friend. He just died at 106 a year ago. He'd say, Normandy, what do we have to do? Whatever you want, dear boy, whatever you want. He said, we're going to go for a walk. So it's Mutt and Jeff. Here we are walking around. And he said, okay, as I think, and we had our scene in front of us, this is the what's important. The rest of it's just, I said, okay, what do you want to do? I said, he said, Let's try this. And we improvised. He was so good at all of that. And it was a lot of fun. The part was fun. Peter did apologize one day. He said, the Black Tower, the executives at Universal, promised that I could direct five episodes. And now they're reneging. So he said, I want to take a walk. Do you mind if I take a walk today and you do your close-ups on your own? I said, no, I'm fine with that. Stand up for yourself. Absolutely. Years before, I did a movie called Valdez is Coming with Burt Lancaster in Spain. And we were sitting in the mountains outside the famed city of Avila, as in Teresa. And he said, and he was a very tense, difficult person. He didn't chat up, Bert. He was, but he said, come here, sit down. Okay, all right. So I sat and we were looking at this beautiful vista over the mountains early in the morning. And he said, just want to tell you, don't let the bastards grind you down. And I said, you mean the studio? Yeah. So 
I got a lot of background from Wanda, Lancaster, Richard Widmark. These men, not so much the women, they didn't seem to, they weren't considered to be important enough to last long. There was this quick turnover because it was a very male-dominated business. Thank God it isn't anymore. That led into the next one, which is Night Moves, which was Arthur Penn, amazing director. And Gene Hackman, again, difficult, hurt by the business here and manipulated and all of that. The Harvey Weinsteins existed in those days, but I was protected from all of a lot of that, most of that, by having two women as my bosses. It was Eleanor Kilgallen in New York and Monique James on the West Coast. And when it occurred, depending on the time of day, I would call, collect California, and they would put me through, and I would tell Monique what was going on. She said, not to worry, dear, just go and have a nice meal. The next day, that person was gone, absent. But many of my contemporaries were not so lucky. They'd been hired by other people. But Night Moves, Arthur Penn was great with women. He was a wonderful director. And I like the script. I remember that Shirley Bernstein was my manager at that point, And she sent me from, I was doing a play at the Williamstown Theater Festival. And she said, you're going to have to drive to meet Arthur Penn. He'll see you. So I got into this car on my day off and drove, I don't know where, through the Berkshires and found Arthur Penn. And he didn't ever ask people to read. He just wanted to talk. Great. And so I enjoyed that, too. That was, I didn't get to go on, most of my work was either the airport or onto the soundstage. But he was a theater and film director, and he rehearsed with the whole cast for two weeks, including Melanie Griffin, who was, I don't know, 15 or something. I was lucky enough to be to learn the classics at the Royal Academy, and then also lucky enough from about 70 to work with Stella Adler in Los Angeles, who famously said to me, I'm going to break your English jaw, meaning that it's not in the words, it's in the intention. So what a movie is not, you can say, don't forget the milk or... I like cream cheese with my potato. It doesn't mean anything until you understand what's beneath it. What's the intention? Where is this going? So she was able to, with exercises and going once or twice a week to classes, when she was out, she'd be out maybe three, four months in the summer, understand what that meant. So I looked around and I thought, there are a lot of women who are conflicted and who are in terrible marriages who want to have kids or they want to have a career and their husbands are wandering or messed up or whatever. So it was easy to just watch and read. It was all in Ms. Magazine and all those women's, the good ones, not the ones that are selling ads for makeup and facelifts, but the other really good writing was happening. So that's, I think that was how it was fun also, Gene had been a theater actor, so he also liked to improvise. And Arthur wanted us to take the script and play with it. So when we did the big fight in the kitchen, I reached up 
and smacked all the pots, made a horrendous noise, and it got a great reaction from Hackman. And he later said, I wanted to do that. You beat me to it. I liked that. I went to New York. I met Dee Dee Allen, the editor. I watched her cut in the old-fashioned way, actual film. I went to observe Arthur teaching a class at the Actors Studio. These were fun days. A couple of the other things you wrote, <laughs> the, the two films, North Avenue Irregulars and The Apple Dumpling Gang, that was like connecting the dots. Disney was so structured. And the director, he actually had a board. This is in the middle 70s, late 70s for the second one. But the, he said, no, you actually move here and that line and over here you move. What? Yes. I also had a really good company of actors who just totally said yes and ignored and went on. It did whatever they wanted to do. But he had framed his shot and he knew what it was. It was like working with a computer. But I don't think they do that anymore. I think that was then. North Avenue Irregulars, all those crazy women. Ugh. Boris Leachman used to tell everybody she was a vegetarian at that point, bless her soul. And she would go around and she'd say, do you know what you're putting in your body? All that meat, all that fat, it's disgusting. Then she decided to go and lock herself in her trailer. And Mr. Disney himself had to come down and persuade her that the show had to go on. And the crew was so mad and the director was so pissed off that he just said, thank you, Cloris, just sit over there until we're ready. So that night, we were working late. It was a night shot, and in those days, you just didn't think about it. You drove to the studio at midnight, and you parked your car, and you shot all night. And I was coming back in a break, and I see Chorus coming with a huge container of soup that was obviously full of meat. And I said, whoa, are you working tonight? Oh, no, I'm just bringing a little apology to the crew. Karen Valentine was a sweetheart. She was lovely. All of those women were fun. That was fun. I spoke with Bruce Bilson and uh, Edward Herman a few years ago, obviously, before Mr. Herman passed. And nobody really has anything good to say about Clark Slayton on that show. It was horrendous. I think some of these guys, I think Herman won. I think he was married. I think he wanted, he had a family. Hello, it's a job. It's not a religion. So for somebody to every day be late with set and we're all standing around or have a problem with the food or have a problem with some, there was always a problem. And I understand she was the mother of eight kids and I have such respect for her talent, amazing talent. And I think she was bored. So when she got bored, she just misbehaved. The rest of us just went home to our partners. With Babe, was that the first time that you met Alex Karras? Yep, yeah. Buzz Kulik, who was the director, hired me six months before and persuaded MGM to have me train in hurdling and running and throwing the javelin and golf. So I had been working out for six months with a wonderful young man who was on the tour, golf tour, Mickey Sholdar, and... I had fun. And Buzz said, you have to come and meet Alex Karras. You, in fact, you have to come and audition. It's Sundays. 
day before Valentine's Day. And so we went to CBS in Los Angeles, and there were three guys, and they were all big and football players. But Alex was the one who made up his own dialogue. He didn't like the dialogue, so he made it up. And when I tried to respond, he just put his hand in front of my face and said, Smith. <laughs> and that was a little kind of strange. But apparently what Buzz and the other the producers and the writer saw a chemistry that I didn't particularly see at that moment. But then Alex would sneak over to the golf course, nine-hole golf course in Studio City, Weddington the Weddington golf. And Mickey would say, oh, that actor's there again. He's hiding in the bushes. And he would come up. He, just, he wanted to make sure that his big moment in television was not going to be messed up by some woman who did not know how to do anything as far as athletics were concerned. And Mickey doubled me in all the great lol golf shots. He Oh, he was teased mercilessly to put on the wig and the dress. And oh, it was really funny. <laughs> but he was a good egg, lots of fun. But it changed my life because that we st lived, started living together about eight months later and had a child and got married. And I had 37 years of a wonderful relationship. So, Babe is probably my favorite. Buzz Kulik, he just had a knack with actors, and that is the sign of a director, somebody who listens, who doesn't talk a lot, who doesn't push around or predetermine where everything. There's another guy that wanted to rehearse, and so Alex and I and maybe three or four other actors would go to his house, to Buzz Kulik's house, and sit around the dining table, and his wife would serve us coffee in Danish or whatever, and we would just keep reading and reading. And the screenwriter was there, and she would change stuff. It's a work in progress, always. And so when somebody sets it in stone, it makes it very hard. It's a dialogue going back and forth with the director and the writer and the other actors. And then in the theater, it's a dialogue with the audience. There you don't improvise. You do not change anything. That's written in stone. But how you do it is not. Where the pauses are. That's not an issue. So the directors that really came from theater, came from New York, had done early television where it was all theater people. They had a much better time. When was the first time you met Bob Clark? He wanted me for a movie, I think, at Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers wouldn't accept me. And I was devastated. Oh, my God. I know our manager, we had a business manager that we shared and it was this guy that introduced the two of us. And he'd just done a movie in Toronto. So that's where I'm from. And so we had lots to share about that. And he said, don't worry. I know it's very hurtful and all of that, but we're going to work together. So the first thing we did, Murder by Decree, but it had a lot of other names too. <laughs> but he was great. And then I did Porky's later and he said, I'm the only director in Hollywood that keeps casting you as a hooker. <laughs> so Murder by Decree, oh my God, James Mason, I just was dumbstruck. He's one of my favorite actors ever. That voice is like velvet. Christopher Plummer was naughty. We would be shooting at night in Southwark, which is on the other side of the river, and 
dark, and he'd goose me, just just try and get a, a reaction. We had to have the middle of the week off. I remember we shot Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and had Tuesday, Wednesday as the weekend. So again, I'd been to school, I had friends there, I got to see theater. It was a magical job. And we stayed at the annex of a hotel, so we had little apartments. It was great. I loved it. We were in London. I cannot remember the name of the hotel. If I could, you would you would recognize it immediately. We were in the West End in Annex, which is a little part on Albemarle Street, and everything was there. Green Park and the West End and fantastic restaurants. And we could walk to work some days, and then other days we were picked up. Yeah. So it was, no, we didn't do anything in Murder by Decree in Toronto. It was all shot in London. There was another actress, Genevieve Bougeau. Yes, she was lovely. We went to yeah. we went to rock concerts. It was fun. I don't think films today are fun. I think everybody wants too much money up front. Maybe, I don't know. It was a company of actors. And I forget which was it. Them, they built the Thames, and James Mason would come by on his way from the makeup room. Have they thrown you in the drink yet, dear? No, they haven't. No, not yet. It was everybody. Frank Finley was on his way to becoming a major theater actor and did a lot of film as well. But no, it was, again, being in those places when Jack the Ripper was running around killing all these people, which, of course, it wasn't. It was the head of the Masons, the Masonic Order, and they were looking for the child of wedlock with an Irish Catholic girl, and they wanted her dead. So there was a lot of off-screen violence, but interesting, very good play, very good script, and lots of fun to do. Yeah, the cast is phenomenal. I couldn't believe when the cast list comes up and it's just, and David Hemmings, and Donald Sutherland. It's just so many people. John Gilgood, another. All of these actors were huge for me because I'd gone to school and they were at t- top of their game 20 years before. And also it was a very good script. I later did a television show with that same playwright and it was fun. Good writer. What was Mr. Clark like to work with? Oh, he was great. He was great. He said, what do you want to do? He had to be a little stricter because it was night and dangerous on that part of London on the other side of the Thames. But he'd say, whatever you want to do, let's try it. Just come prepared to do it so we don't waste a lot of time. And that's fair enough. That's the actor having to do their own homework. So then the Porky's was later, and that was great fun. That was, again, mostly at night, and it was in the jungles of Florida. But he was great fun. He liked actors. He had a good time. That's so important, I think, for the director to be enjoying himself, as opposed to feeling this heavy weight on their shoulders of having to do X number of pages or X number of takes or reverse this and over the shoulder this. It doesn't work. It just burns everybody out, I think. You mentioned Babe as being one of your favorite roles. I'm curious what other roles you really enjoyed doing over the years. I liked doing em- Amelia Earhart. That was fun. I liked doing, it was an interesting 
movie called The Choice, and it was about abortion. And as we were shooting it in Los Angeles, Ronald Reagan was elected. And of course, that was a pro, not pro-choice constituency that elected him. And the director was David Green, wonderful television director, who said, we better bloody finish this quickly because it's not going to be on the air. So, yeah, that was interesting. It was, it doesn't say one way or the other, but I think it, it wouldn't be done today because it showed the clinics where they dissuaded women, if they could, not to terminate a pregnancy. Not anything that anybody ever wants to do, but sometimes have to, or a lot of religion and guilt. That was one thing I've always appreciated you as an actress and as a woman, is you always seem to be conscious of those roles, even just the way that you wore your hair throughout the years. And just like, you seem to be making a statement with that. You seemed like a very powerful character, whether you were in Webster or wherever, you always seem to have like your shit together. Thank you. That's a lovely compliment. Thank you. I think that's the Stella Adler. She would say, don't come in complaining. If you need therapy, go to a therapist. Your job is to find the history, the social aspect, what's going on in the country or city or wherever you are. You have to be part of this whole, or you have nothing really to contribute. You're just saying lines. So that was fun. That was fun. I remember spending time in jail when we did The Midnight Man in uh, with Burt Lancaster again in South Carolina. That was a weird place in the 70s, but it was my first real time in the South, and it was terrifying. They had cells from the 19th century where no average person could stand up, and that informed why my character was pretending to be so concerned, or she was a thief and all kinds of better, had a nefarious past, which our star, Mr. Lancaster, helped unravel. But yeah, it the place is it. I remember Henry Hathaway. Alex and I met John Wayne before he passed at a big thing for Babe. And he had said in many interviews to Henry Hathaway, Henry, what do you got working for me today? Which meant, what are you shooting behind me? What is the audience going to see? Is it mountains? Is it desert? Is it forest? Is it a whole bunch of other people? Am I alone? So we asked him if he'd said that, and he said, yeah, damn straight. And that's a big thing, the character of the place. And now they're doing it. They're doing it in these wonderful miniseries on television. They never did that in television or 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was all close up and back, back lot and stuff. Now the place is a character. And so you're drawn into it in a magical way as an actor and as an audience, hopefully. Yeah. It's funny how you're talking about the special effects of Colossus. And now I think about entire sets are just either green screen or wrap around. So it, you feel like you're in another place. You do. You do. We, the president of the United States and all of these scientists sitting around and they built this fantastic set at Universal and then they would have the video for Colossus and then the film filming us with Colossus. Very complicated. And for those that didn't understand film, and I was one at that point in the 60s, I thought, this is so boring. Is anybody ever going to watch this? 
But I was wrong. I was wrong. It was. It is a very interesting film. What have you been up to lately? I'm still a member of the Threshold Foundation, and they know absolutely nothing about show business, which is fine. But it's working for over 40 years. I've been an environmental activist, so peace and social justice. So working with that kept me grounded for 40 years in Hollywood. And now I don't see plays or much television coming to me that would indicate where we are now as a planet, as a country. And so reality is much more interesting and much more frightening. Hello, the end of the planet, nuclear war. You can't just sit there and complain. You got to get up and do something. We're planning a retreat. And one of the questions that you had was, do I have something to say that I believe in? And I would say, yes, let's all, if you pray, or if you don't, that's okay too. But let's work toward kindness, generosity, harmony, hope, and peace. Ms. Clark, thank you so much. I've had such a great time talking with you today. You're welcome. Good. If you are a woman, you walk these streets at your peril. For this is London's Whitechapel in the time of Jack the Ripper, one of the world's most infamous killers. Hello, darling. Like a bit of fun? The dense black fog of London hides a multitude of sin. It shields a murderer whose urge to kill is conceived in cunning and born in a maniac's hell. Here are the bodies spitting sawdust haunts the Ripper New. But who was the Ripper? Only one man thought he knew the answer. His address... 221B Baker Street, please, Cabby. His name was Sherlock Holmes. It's true these murders are the work of a madman, but a madman with certain medical skills, considerable intelligence, and education. Then if you're right, Mr. Holmes, it brings us back to the doctors. Sherlock Holmes, the original special agent, forerunner of today's thrill-makers. Sherlock Holmes, a genius at detecting the improbable and solving the impossible. Incredible. Elementary, my dear Watson. Dr. Watson, the other half of this fantastic partnership. This is Carfax, who helped Holmes more than he knew. And Murray, the doctor, whose tongue was as sharp as his scalpel. This butcher boy has the government, has all of us on the edge of a knife. Only this morning, three more men were attacked in the streets of London. These were the women who lived in the shadow of the river. The redhead, once famed for her beauty. The gay, buxom little blonde. The provocative brunette. These were the kind of women the Ripper loved. Till murder did them part.
never see anything like it this side of hell. All right, we are back, and we are talking about murder by decree. And I've, uh, I think all of us have made references to some of the previous and subsequent pairings of Holmes and Jack the Ripper. But let's talk a little bit about study and terror. I like John Neville. I'm not sure if I liked his interpretation of Holmes, but you know, we're talking about the whole pieces on the chessboard and stuff. This one just felt the most linear, just like. Holmes always felt like he was one step behind the Ripper until right at the end is how I was seeing it. And it just felt like kind of like subpar hammer almost like I know it's not a hammer film, but it feels like hammer. So cheesy. I did not like this at all. I wanted to like it. I like Neville in, in Houston as Watson to a degree. I didn't think they were awful, but every time they weren't there, I didn't like anything about it. It just felt like this what kind of movie are we doing here? Like, do you, do you, I feel like they couldn't nail down what tone they were even going for. That's, I think that's completely accurate. They're trying to make a period Sherlock Holmes film in 1965. And we're, you know, you're in the middle of swinging London, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and it just felt, and especially when they got to the advertising campaign for that film in the U.S., and they tried to equate it with uh, the Batman TV show and play up the camp qualities of it. You know, the posters literally were saying the original Camp Crusader in a cape. And uh, it was, they were frantically trying to figure out what the film was. Um, I think holistically, Murder by the Cree works better. And what distinguishes it from most Sherlock Holmes films is that Sherlock Holmes has an arc in this film. He goes on a transformative odyssey from kind of a man in the high castle, separate from the mob, to becoming their uh, crusading advocate. And you don't get that. I mean, you certainly don't get that in any of the Rathbone films. You know, there's no journey for Sherlock Holmes. He's Sherlock Holmes when the film starts. He's Sherlock Holmes when it ends. And that is one of the aspects of this film that I, I did like, is it stands out for being a Sherlock Holmes story in which the character does have an arc and does transform in some way. Going back to studying terror, I mentioned the lack of Mycroft this month, and here we've got Mycroft in this, played by Robert Morley, who just, what an incredible face. It feels, again, like he's an actor I grew up with watching all the time, and just looking at the number of credits and things that he was in, it was like, yeah, I could see why he was probably on television just a ton. So, great to, to see him show up, and this tried to do a good thing of to pull Morley in there and talk about how this Ripper case is kind of shaking the halls of power, but yeah, they just didn't pull it off. And then the other thing that really bothered me was some of the ladies voices. There's one who's like super squeaky. And then so many of them that just felt like they fell off the Eliza Doolittle truck where it's just like, cause I think we start with a POV shot again. And as soon as the lady turned around, I was just like, Hello, dearie. I just knew it was coming. <laughs> gave me a headache. It really gave me a headache. That blonde lady, especially her voice, and it's she talks for so long. It's yeah, that was rough, man. That was real rough. Well, in that in the study in terror, the, all the prostitutes, they're gorgeous. They got all their teeth, perfect, perfect complexions, really nice clothes, and that's you know in uh, Murder by Decree, they at least make an effort. The the women of the night do look a little bit uh, downtrodden. Um, they're not, uh, you know, shining beauties by by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, what was the the one that seduced Watson? And I got all my teeth, and the, oh, there goes one. 
the look on her face was great because she was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> there it goes. So I wanted to also talk a little bit about Dustin's Shadow, uh, an account of the Ripper killings by Dr. John Watson, actually being written by uh, another person. Lindsay Fay. Great, great book. It really worked very well for me. And it was kind of weird having all of this, all of these different uh, versions of Holmes and Jack the Ripper and how all the pieces met and she actually went in a different direction that I wasn't expecting. So it, um, actually surprised me. So there were a couple of good red herrings in the book and I would say, yeah, definitely check it out. If you like Sherlock Holmes stories and of all of these things that we're talking about, study and terror, uh, murder by decree. We'll talk about from hell in a minute. I think that her book is probably the best of the lot. Well, Lindsay Fay is a very well-regarded and very knowledgeable Sherlock Holmes fan and as a you know, kind of major figure in the uh, Sherlockian community. So yeah, she knows her stuff backwards and forwards. So going back to very pretty prostitutes, Heather Graham looking really good in From Hell and does not look like she lives on the streets. And not at all. Mm-mm. No, nope. some of her companions don't look that way either. They're very, very pretty, very well put together. And I mean, the, the setting for this film, it really, you know, they went all out when it came to the squalor and all that. But what I saw from hell the very first time way back when in 2001, uh, at the Toronto film festival, uh, funny, I was talking with my friend Skiz and he actually saw from hell the morning of nine 11. And when the movie was over, they came in and said, that's it. Festival's canceled because of 9-11 but when i saw it the first time not a big fan when i saw it again all these years later 22 years later still not a big fan i like the the graphic novel a lot more but yeah this movie i was not feeling it i i kind of agree with you it was okay it was okay i only saw it once it's not like i, I never, didn't like it enough to watch it again and i mean i like that period i like my ripper stories at one point, you know, when there was all the hullabaloo about was it Prince Eddie, I had, you know, three or four Sherlock Holmes books that I read. Um, but for whatever reason, it th- that particular film didn't grab me. I don't like the way it's shot. I feel like it's chaotic. It's trying to be more stylized than it needs to be and forgetting the substance portion. Uh, I don't necessarily like the story end of it. I really don't like the ending that kind of, oh, oh yeah, she didn't. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm okay with uh, changing a, a real life ending and making it more of a fictional account. I mean, hey, once upon a time in Hollywood, I kind of like how that ended. But this, I just didn't like. I just didn't like. So Mary's okay. So somebody else just died in her place. That person doesn't matter. I don't know. And I just didn't like that twist. I wasn't feeling the whole thing of Johnny Depp being psychic because we. It's it's very late in the game before we start to see the flashes that he gets i guess it's you're taking your donald sutherland and making the main character in this one but uh, but there's so many times at first where he's just like oh yeah i had a vision oh i saw that in a vision and i'm just like are you actually having visions or are you just bullshitting i think the only thing i liked about from hell i liked it the first time i think i liked it even more the second time robbie coltrane yeah i liked I it. Love yeah, his I character like it. Yeah. i love when he makes shakespeare references and nobody 
gets that he's making Shakespeare references. I like that he got a lot of pleasure of punching uh, Johnny Depp to wake him up. Johnny Depp, to me, I kept mixing this movie up with Sleepy Hollow, and I was like, oh yeah, this is the one, it's kind of like the alienist, where uh, you know he's going to come in and he's going to put on like scientific equipment and figure the case out, and I'm like, I think my mashup is better than either one of those films individually. I would like to see Ichabod Crane in From Hell. I think that might actually make it a little bit more interesting. I would watch that. Yeah, that sounds great. That's what this should have been. Is he really, is it just an addict? Does he really have visions? I mean, I really don't know what, I, I just don't like this movie. I just don't. I tried so hard. This is, everything about this movie was right up my wheelhouse, especially when it came out. And it does not perform on any level for me. Well, it's funny. It kind of goes back to what you were saying, uh, I think earlier, David, where it's the whole idea of like these cycles and here we are again. Here's now Jack the Ripper again, all these years later, like what's the next major Ripper movie? When is that going to be out there? But yeah, here we are again with this same thing. And here we are again with the Masons and I mean, the similarities between this movie and Murder by Decree, I I mean, the Hughes brothers must have seen Murder by Decree. You've got the whole black eyes that Ian Holmes gets when he gets really into his persona of uh, Jack the Ripper. You've got all this Masonic stuff that's going on in here. I mean, it's, it's really kind of wild to see the similarities and they saw Murder by Decree and they just pushed it ever so slightly into a different way. I like the I like the title. I like that from hell. I mean, that's uh that's one of the letters that uh you know, Jack the Ripper ostensibly sent to the Central News Agency. And you can see, you know, the letters, you know, just type in Jack the Ripper and you can see the letter itself on Wikipedia. And it's really creepy to look at because it goes on, you know, from hell, Mr. Lusk, that's who it's addressed to. And the, 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 just the penmanship itself and the misspelled words, it's disturbing to look at, even if it appears to have been, uh, you know, not legitimate, kind of a hoax, not clearly from the Ripper, you know, the guy actually doing the Ripper killings. Um, and I'm always a sucker for a good title from hell. That's a great title. By the way, don't make the mistake that I made and look up killing pictures of uh, Mary Kelly. Oh, Not good. man. Yeah. Uh, they're available and they're pretty awful. They are absolutely terrible. I mean, yeah. when they say he mutilated his victims, they weren't exaggerating. Well, Mary Kelly's the one that he had a lot of time. A lot of the other killings were rushed and outdoors. It's amazing what human beings are willing to do to other human beings on two he did on one night right like um right yeah same day the double event as it was called yeah and the whole cheat of heather graham no it wasn't really her it was this other one i'm like okay this kind of like silence of the lambs going to the door with the flowers kind of thing no no you know like it wasn't the hobbits in here it was actually pillows you stabbed pillows you silly nazgul here you've got that. And then you've got like basically the um, minority report ending of her and the baby or the little girl out in this beautiful cottage that, you know, this completely make believe type land where it's like, I almost feel like, are they dead? Because it doesn't feel like they're, you know, it feels like they're in heaven rather than actually on an island. But no, she's all good. And then poor Jenny Depp, spoilers, just smokes too much opium and floats away so 
he doesn't get the happy ending. Well, that's one thing I appreciate about this film, about Murder by Decree, was there is no uh, emphasis on drug use. I mean, they, they make a joke of it. You know, they show Holmes with a syringe and a needle, but he's using it to clean out his pipe. <laughs> I like that. I thought that was a fun touch, actually. And I believe, I believe they ran the script past the uh, Sherlock Holmes Society of London, and that was why they you know, gave it their mark of approval. They, they liked the fact that there was not an em- emphasis on Sherlock Holmes' drug use in Murder by the Creek. I would say it's, it's worth watching. A lot of the cinematography is very cool. Um, a lot of the uh, location shooting is very cool. They use the Tate Gallery in the beginning um, as the opera house. And then there's a, a tracking shot, a traveling shot of, of Buckingham Palace. And not that, you know, they got permission. They just put a camera in uh, a carriage or a cart or moving and they just shot it. And they included it in the picture. And the sets themselves, I mean, this was shot at Shepperton Studios the same time they were shooting Alien there. And the set that they built just of the wharf and the Thames, it's just magnificent. I mean, the film has like 17 major sets. And, you know, they were really, really meticulous about trying to capture 1888 Victorian London. And it, it looks great. It's just a great looking film. Uh, a little bit preachy at the end. But other than that, I, I think it's, you know, well worth watching. Yeah, I love the cinematography, especially how Fog is almost a secondary character here. Which you would almost expect from this particular storyline, but I just I really like the way Bob Clark captured it, and I, and again it amazes me that this is the Bob Clark of Porky's and a Christmas Story and Baby Geniuses. I mean, it, it's wild to even think that. But I I love the cinematography. I love the look and the feel of the film. I think the music really complements everything that's in it. The performances are strong. I realize it's not very purish Sherlock Holmes, and I don't disagree with David that he doesn't do a lot until the end but i feel like he's building toward the end so i can in my mind i can justify it he's building toward that finale where he explains everything and he's been on the trail and he's tracking him down and he's figuring it out and da, 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 da. Uh, when you said the end i thought you were talking about the uh the scarf in the big fight i love how it's like Chekhov's scarf like we get that in the first act and then <laughs> and i and I, I really appreciate how once the fight is completely over and, and and he's hung and everything else, that's when he collapses. I mean, basically, just he was going on on pure adrenaline up and up until that point. I love the wild reveal of finding Mary. It was the creepiest reveal. I thought I just a very ominous and just horribly dour uh, reveal of her death. And they're just sitting there, almost ogling the body. It's just oh, it's very unnerving. So Bob Clark, I think I. He was a very talented horror director, I felt like. And, you know, Black Christmas, I'm a big fan of that film. Uh, I like what he does here. He does some intriguing shots. I'm very surprised it's PG. I really love the Jaws homage at the at the beginning that you talked about um, with the black eyes. And, and I, yeah, there's a lot here that I like. I got a real charge out of it because I'd forgotten it, like watching the scenes with uh, the psychic, you know, Donald Sutherland and realizing that his sister is Ralphie's teacher. In a, in a Christmas story. It's like, oh my God, that's her. Yeah, that was great. I liked that a lot. Yeah, he definitely liked to work with the same people very often, which was nice. And then I th- to hear his commentary on the keynote disc and just he sounds like he was a kid in the candy store when it came to these actors. I love the idea of it originally being uh, Peter O'Toole and Lawrence Olivier 
And that would have been a little weird since we just saw Lawrence Olivier being Moriarty uh, in 7% Solution. But yeah, to your point, Aaron, if you're if you're British, you're probably going to play uh, Sherlock Holmes. I mean, even Plummer had played Sherlock Holmes the year before. And I think, I can't remember what that one was called, the Silver Flame or something? Silver Blaze. Silver Blaze, thank you. Yeah, and that's the, a Sherlock Holmes story. The Watson in that, is that the same Watson as from Smarter Brother? Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's yeah. wild. Because as soon as I saw him, I was like, I've seen this Watson before now, so... He was Watson four times. He just had he just had a good Watson look to him. I really feel like you can't get into the British Academy unless you play Sherlock Holmes or John Watson at some point. I think it's it's just legally required. It's part of citizenship. What a scandal having little puny Robert Downey Jr. coming over and stealing British roles. What the first that and then Brexit? And he's he takes black roles, he takes British roles, he just doesn't care. He doesn't care. Downey can do anything. But can he do Jimmy Stewart and Vertigo? We'll have to see. Well, Peter Peter O'Toole did make a, an appearance as Holmes in a cartoon. Unfortunately, my understanding is that Peter O'Toole and Laurence Olivier both agreed to be in the film, uh, but then they backed out because of, I mean, I think it was like Laurence Olivier was having dalliances with other actresses while he was married to Vivian Lee. And Peter O'Toole took advantage of that to have a dalliance with Vivian Lee. And so the two gentlemen were not on the best of terms because you're making merry with my wife, old man. So uh, they, they, couldn't put, they couldn't put the personal differences aside, uh, which is unfortunate because they would have been a really interesting pairing as Holmes and Watson. Respect to Peter O'Toole for seizing an opportunity, though. Well, I think, I think he said at one point the only disconcerting thing was uh, there were pictures of Laurence Olivier all over her bedroom. You know, while, while, while he was with her. But that didn't put him off, apparently. So, all right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Why don't you just go home? I've been asking myself that one all night long. So what happened? Why can't you? I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. I feel like something incredible is really going to happen here. <laughs> so when I got home, I gave her a call. On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. Didn't really get along with her that well. What's the matter? I said, I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. So I left. So I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender who wanted to lend me the money. That's all right. That's all right. Forget it. Forget it. That's all right. Good boy. So I go back to the girl's apartment, but her roommate's really pissed off at me for the way I treated her friend. This the guy? Hi. So I march right in there to apologize. Come on. But she'd already killed herself. I was too late. Oh, wow. Lighten up. What is this? I'm in big trouble. I mean, big trouble. Now, this part, you're going to say, oh, you're lying to me. Don't lie to me. But it's true. Mohawk this guy. I couldn't believe that. It's him. Tell him. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I got to tell who you didn't do what. Help. 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 Call the police. What's with you? Are you nuts or something? Luckily, there was this girl who saw the whole thing. You're dead, pal. I'm what? So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave. You know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? What do you want from me? What have I done? I'm just a word processor. 
damn it! Is that all they After hours, when anything can happen, and usually does. Is that unbelievable or what? That's all there is, my friends. Then let's keep dancing. That's right, we are switching gears next month and talking about some comedic films. First up, we'll be talking about Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Until then, what is the latest with you, Aaron? Well, as I've talked about in the previous uh, episodes, I am the host of the Hollywood Outsider podcast, a weekly award-winning podcast for film and television where we have a topic each week. We do reviews and anything big in entertainment news uh, on a weekly basis. That's that thehollywoodoutsider.com. That's thehollywoodoutsider.com. And I do a monthly podcast on Alfred Hitchcock films where we go through each and every single one of them. We're almost to the end, actually. It's called Presenting Hitchcock. You can also find that at thehollywoodoutsider.com as well, but the podcast itself is called Presenting Hitchcock. And David, what is happening with you, sir? Uh, I found out earlier this week that my next new play will premiere at the Purple Rose Theater in lovely Chelsea, Michigan on March 29th, 2024, The Antichrist Cometh, a black comedy. And I got two screenplays I'm hawking, one on street soccer, uh, one on a Middle Eastern banker. Uh, and I've got a if anybody wants to make a great movie with uh, the actress Sheree Agblashu, she's attached to play the lead. Now we just need a wee bit of money to get it made. So if any of your uh, well-heeled listeners want to make a film, the script is complete. Got an Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning actress attached. Every once in a while, I'll get some sort of hot shot director, producer, writer guy that's just like, oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of the show. So come on, you guys. Put some money behind this project. If anybody's ever heard of the Athena List, which is uh, an award given to best screenplays featuring female protagonists, my uh, my screenplay in the Land of Fire and Ice won that. And uh, Esheray liked it, and I met her in Toronto to talk about it. And she's very geeked about it. But yeah, you know, movies are hard to get you know made. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Thank you guys so much for being on this journey of us talking about Sherlock Holmes for a month. I think we might have to come back and maybe look at some 80s incarnations or 2000s, pick another decade, you know, that we can finally talk about young Sherlock Holmes, Aaron. That would be fantastic. Oh, don't you tease me. Don't you tease me. <laughs> I'm on board if you guys are. I'm all right. I'm absolutely. Might become a tradition. You never know. So thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Mm-hmm.